He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 5, 2022. The news not all that great. Jew-hating, exploding in America, around the world. Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, NBA in turmoil. Soon Hollywood will be in turmoil. It is chaos. Isn't that what Jeb Bush said about Donald J. Trump his pal Bibi Netanyahu back in Israel. Some turmoil in the Jewish state as well. Our first guest comes to us live, at least when we taped it, he was live, from Haifa, Israel. He's coming to Colorado. He's an acclaimed filmmaker. His name, Ari Fulman. He made Waltzing with Bashir. Waltz with Bashir was nominated for an Academy Award. Now he's made Where is Anne Frank? And we've got the big showing November 9th at the JCC, the Wolf Theater. We talk about that. We talk about what's going on in Israel, the view of America from there, vice versa. What a discussion, followed up by a guy who's been to Israel 18 times. Gino Geraci is the pastor, or he was, at South Calvary Church. He's got a popular daytime show on the Salem Media Network. Salem Media Group puts this guy on. They are the same people who fired my ass three years ago. We talk about that organization. We talk about Christianity's role in anti-Semitism with my friend Gino Geraci in a wide-ranging conversation where I learned a lot, and I think you will too. I thought about things after I talked to Gino and I talked about them more with our troubadour, Dave Gunders. He provides the perfect song, Looking Down, because some think that non-Christians are going to hell or bad people are, whatever. There's a concept of heaven and hell that I'm not sure is that healthy or helping us right now. I witnessed a man throw his life away Well, I wasn't there when it happened, thank God. What a terrible event, June 10, 2020. We've covered it many times on this podcast. The murder of Isabella Thales for no reason by a mad white man named Michael Close. He didn't like his life. He had a big assault weapon, an AK-47 that he got from his pal Dan Politica, Check that out on my YouTube channel. I'm the attorney for Darian Simon, Isabella Thales' beloved boyfriend who survived. He witnessed Bella get murdered, and then Michael Close tried to get rid of the only witness, and he almost did, but Darian Simon survived for the sentencing that happened Friday afternoon, Denver District Courtroom 5A. I was there. Judge Lisa Arnold, the first witness at the sentencing, my client Darian Simon, 
If you want to do a good thing, buy a Be A Good Person brand product. That's Darian's company, and it's a good one. And we all need to be a good person. And oh my gosh, Darian was so accomplished. Such a handsome, beautiful, creative individual. And he found the perfect woman, Isabella Thales. And they were a beautiful couple until Michael Close did the unthinkable, shooting these strangers for no reason. But Darian survived. And he looked Michael Close in the eye this afternoon as I record this Friday evening. Darian said, I'll never forgive you. You did something unforgivable. You acted like a coward. And you did so again at the trial. Darian told the man who took his beloved Bella, soak in everything I'm telling you. If I would have died, you might have gotten away with it. Think about every word I just said. I survived just so I could say this to you. You lose. Not that Darian's a winner. Everybody lost. Michael Close got sentenced to life plus 48 years. Joshua Thales, who was guest on our podcast, remembering his beautiful daughter, Bella, he spoke to the court today, and as he did so, it was hard because there was Darian in the pews with me sobbing as Joshua called out this monster, Michael Close, named him a coward, saluted Darian for being there and being the witness and telling the courtroom that he believed in this system or he would have killed the man who killed his daughter. And then he told him, be thankful for God's forgiveness because my earthly heart has not been able to do so. Then the beautiful Christy Simon spoke. She is beautiful in every sense of the word. Inside, outside, she wore a jacket that had love on and she saluted earth angel Jake Pucci, who was the subject of our podcast since he saved the life of the beautiful Darian Simon, Christy Simon's beautiful son, who said you needed a mother who would have taught you to take deep breaths and count to 10 when you feel mad. Don't go get an AK-47 and shoot people from for no reason. And then Christy announced that she was moving on with love and she was going to move from being a victim to being a survivor. And she was followed by Darian's Natural father, Eric, who spoke so magnificently because I'm a dad. And he talked about how Michael Close will be in his thoughts every time he sees his son walk with a limp in his gait. Eric said you can't hate people because it sears your own soul. So he was going to try hard not to hate this man. But he hoped he lived a long life and that it would be not good, and that he would never have dogs of his own again. Mary Simon, Grandma Mary spoke as Grandma only can. I'm glad Darian wasn't in the courtroom right then. He had to leave. It was emotional. She told the judge what we know, that Darian will never be quite the same. He's trying to get his passions back. But they have PTSD, Rocco, his beautiful dog in him from witnessing what they did. 
then the Grandma Hernandez on the maternal side, Sephardic Jewish heritage, got up there with the Bible she'd given Bella when Bella went to college, saying, may the angel of the Lord be with you, Bella. And then she turned to Michael close. Bella had another grandmother, the Hernandez side of the family, the maternal side, which is Sephardic Jewish. Grandma Hernandez got up there with the Bible that she acquired in Spain, gave to Bella when she went to college. And then she turned toward Michael Close. And even though the judge didn't want anybody addressing the defendant personally, it kept happening in that courtroom. And the judge really could not stop it. And Grandma Hernandez said, may the angel of the Lord torment you with the word guilty. Told him that she is praying for the angel of death to for him to know that eternity awaits him and that there's a place waiting for him. And it was clear she was talking about someplace way down south called hell. And this show talks about the concept of hell and heaven. And some people have certainty about that. Some people don't. As for me, I am uncertain. Maybe that's my faith. It teaches uncertainty about a lot of things. It's okay to wrestle with God. But what happens when somebody wants you to believe their way? I'm even uncomfortable with Kyrie Irving being told, you have to renounce your anti-Semitism. Well, what kind of forced conversion is that? Feels like the Inquisition. But back to beautiful Bella. Beautiful Bella's mother, herself beautiful Anna. Anna Thales got up and she talked about right after her 18th birthday giving birth to beautiful Isabella, five pounds, two ounces. And as she put it in that courtroom, I had her. Think about the meaning of that word if you are a woman who has given birth. I had her. As if one human can possess another, but we do. We feel that way about her children, and she was so bonded with her firstborn beautiful daughter, Bella. I had her. And then we know that Bella was gone because of Michael Close, the man she confronted in court, and she... (laughs) made me cry, and Michael Close was completely stoic. As Christy Simon noted, throughout the process, he was stoic, but for when he was found guilty, and he burst into tears. That's the only time he cried, not when he saw pictures of the damage done. I pictured this scene so acutely as Anna described the scene in the mortuary where she saw her daughter shot dead. And she wanted to wipe off the makeup that was on her beautiful daughter's face so she could see the freckles, the beautiful freckles that lay beneath. And then how Mama put the makeup back on for the open casket funeral. I'm thinking about that movie, Till, and how Emmett Till's mother made the decision to show the world what had happened to Emmett Till. And it sparked the civil rights movement. 
and inspired other people to not get up and give up the bus seat. Those sorts of things, right? One person inspires another. I'm not sure what I felt out of that courtroom, but sadness today. Anna talked to Michael Close with her young son at her side, tall, beautiful Jacob Hernandez. Anna said some words that resonate throughout this podcast, which I've titled Looking Down, episode 121. Think about these words from Anna at the sentencing of the murderer of her daughter, Bella. That's what this country is coming to. We've lost our foundation and God on which we stand. That's what we are trying to rebuild now. And then she looked at Michael Close right in the eye and said, I'd highly recommend that you repent. My forgiveness will come someday. Someday it will come. I know it will, but not right now. Jacob Hernandez described to the court how he had his own messed up childhood, listening to his mother cry every night. The ripple effects of violence are profound. I've never seen anything as disgusting as people making up stories about Paul Pelosi. It felt like a Holocaust victim being desecrated. And Paul Pelosi's not Jewish, but he's a lib. And this next battle, I think that the enemy is really going to try to own the libs in every way, shape, and form. You can own another person. Usually involves violence. Paul Pelosi got owned, and he was a lib. So he deserved it, according to some. And if we go down that road, oh my, things are looking down. But the conversation is great. It starts with Ari Fulman from Israel then Gino Geraci, and then our troubadour Dave Gunders with his song Looking Down. Enjoy. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, Instead of a knucklehead, 
who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, it's my honor to welcome to the podcast Ari Fullman. We got to know him in America from Waltz with Bashir. He's now coming back with an amazing new project called Where's Anne Frank? He is bringing it to Denver, the JCC, second week of November. Mr. Fullman, really an honor to have you on. Thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you for hosting me. Tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Haifa, Israel. I was born there. Um, my parents are uh, Holocaust survivors coming from Poland. They came right after the war. And um, I didn't plan to be a filmmaker, I'd say. I was not born and raised to be a filmmaker. It just happened. And did you have to do compulsory military service in Israel? Well, everybody has. So uh, today it's a little more loose. I mean, if you really don't want to do it or if you're a pacifist, you will not do it. But back in the 80s, it was mandatory and I served four years in the army. And it was an eventful four years. Tell everybody about your service. And I, I admire uh, that you served the state of Israel. But I'm wondering if the experience damaged you or made you stronger or probably both. You tell uh, my audience what you went through. Well, I was very young when I was drafted. I was 17 and a half. I was way too young. Um, the war, the Lebanon War, caught me when I was 19, and I was already an officer. To be honest, uh, I'd rather skip it if I could. It was not my choice. Um, but it is what it is. So I served four years. I think uh, when I did the research for Walter Bashir, which is an animated documentary about the war I participated in, I realized that I could have been more damaged. I was in many ways lucky. There have been so many conflicts in Israel. I've been there one time. It was in the wake of shelling from the north and uh, activity from Gaza. It's hard to label and remember Everything I can tell you as a Denver Jew, we remember the Six-Day War, then the Yom Kippur War. I don't remember the war in 56. I'm a little too young for that. But since then, it's, it's kind of blended together. Do you know what I mean? But is that true in Israel? Yes, unfortunately, I think it is. I think it, uh, it's, uh, it's a never-ending story. Um, unfortunately, well, I'm very left-wing in my political opinion, so I don't think uh, we were meant to live on the sword for generations over generations. I think compromises are better than endless fighting. 
but I think the majority of the country feels and thinks totally different than me. Well, that's interesting. I appreciate you labeling yourself uh, as left-wing. Were your parents that way? Where did you get your political philosophy from? Um, my mother was very left-wing. My mother, my father, uh, I mean, I'd say halfway. But um, to be honest, I think in... Forty-eight hours into the Lebanon war, I could see very clearly uh, the meaningless of war, especially this one, because up until Lebanon, all the wars in Israel were defensive wars and they were survival wars just to um, defend and maintain the country. But the Lebanon war was an offensive war, very offensive war, uh, while the Israeli army invaded a different country, um, way more than it was planned. And I think us soldiers were part of it. We realized, um, I mean, when you lose friends so far away from home, you understand that it was not meant to be. And it changes your, your perception and perspective about politics as well. Right. And the perception and perspective of Israel is always changing. Back when I was a, a teenager in the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, America was really rooting for Israel. And it was kind of rooting for an underdog. Then Israel became stronger, the conflict you talked about. And we are all confused. I can tell you politically that I've always been independent. I had occasion at the invitation of now Governor Polis. He was then a, a U.S. representative to attend the speech by Benjamin Netanyahu back in, what was it, 2015? Joe Biden wouldn't appear. Barack yeah. Obama was mad. And I was in the chamber that day. And it was an amazing day, but looking back, maybe really damaging. I thought it was one of the epic speeches in Jewish history. I couldn't believe that I was in the chamber and leading the chairs, but Bibi's disappointed me. And his alliance with Donald Trump, looking back, is suspect. And my old man, an Ashkenazi Jew, you know, we probably come from the same area, he would say, Son, there are people on the take, and then there are people who make it the right way. And now I think Bibi was probably on the take. Is that true? Uh, yes, I think it is. Did your opinion of him change? Did you ever like him, or did you always suspect him? Well, um, I think uh, I think. When it was exposed, the, um, the corruption was exposed in 2015. Up until then, I think it was uh, it was not. I mean, it was not my cup of tea in terms of uh, ideas, political ideas. But he was super intelligent uh, leader, a very good uh, minister of financing, and. Uh, he had some good points in him, but the, and I thought he was not very radical in in terms of um, of um, strategy 
<clears throat> and um, this attitude towards occupied territories. But this has changed dramatically in the last seven years. It's a different, it's a different story now. He's on trial for uh, four cases. It's been dragged for years. He's busy only in this, but so it's different today. Right, but he might be back in power in Israel. Is that a possibility? I think it's pretty. It's a pretty sure possibility. And simultaneously on trial, it's it sounds like America. And I studied up on you, and you already said that you didn't really plan to be a filmmaker. And even though your parents were Holocaust survivors, I think. Didn't you say you would have just been glad not to, you know, get involved with the Holocaust? Just move on. But it's hard to move on. And now you're making this amazing new movie, Where is Anne Frank? And I'm sitting here in America thinking about the Holocaust in ways inconceivable. I'm watching the the social media attacks on every kind of situation. I wrote about Donald Trump's anti-Semitic tweets. We've got Kanye West. Now the right wing twisting what happened to Paul Pelosi. I was a prosecutor in Denver for 16 years, and I've never seen a victim of violent crime the subject of ridicule like this, an assassination attempt. How does it look from Israel, from your perspective? Are you really surprised? With the latest news? Because you seem surprised. I honestly thought America was better than this, but now I realize that we're not. And part of it is we're not that smart or educated. And you look at buffoons who took over the Third Reich. I always thought, gosh, they couldn't survive in the modern world. But now we have, I don't know, no offense to Herschel Walker, but, you know, people who are just... It's laughable that they would be our leaders without education and 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 the, the bullshit conspiracy theories they put out. Yeah, I've been living in a bubble. Are you? Your parents are Holocaust survivors. I grew up in Southeast Denver, and uh, it, it didn't touch me. But now it's starting to, and I'm starting to think about these things more and more. And when I did come to Israel, my tour guide kind of said what I hear in your voice that, hey, someday you're going to need Israel because it's not going to be safe. And now the Washington Post, after my column, uh, Dana Milbank wrote about every Jews thinking about their suitcases and where they might go. And you're telling me, Craig, that's we're just meeting each other, but you're kind of ridiculing me that I should have thought about this before, right? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, look, I think um, Israel is less. I mean, when you come here to Israel, it's not that uh, politics really rules everything. Because I think people have a huge urge um, for for life and for living, you know. So it's a very vivid place, and I think the 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 recovery time for each and every disaster or conflict 
is so minimal you can't even imagine. Uh, think about it that in May last year, there was the last operation. My studios for the film were based in Jaffa. It's a mixed city, Arab-Jewish uh, Arab city. And Tel Aviv was uh, kind of on fire and with missiles coming from Gaza. And then you read the papers and you think uh, they write, Jaffa will never be the same again. Jewish people don't feel safe there. But you know, I'm based there for 22 years and I knew that it will take exactly 24 hours once it's quiet and it's going to go back just the same as it was before. Wow. Yeah, living in that historic city is a little different than Denver where we're not even 200 years old. So, but what can we do about this, Ari? You're making movies for a purpose. You're making Whereas and Frank. We're both trying to express ourselves ultimately with the desire to wake people up. Please tell me that's possible. Uh, I wish I could, but you know, I think the I I I I learned a big lesson with uh, with the Anne Frank movie. Um, you know, I'll ask you a question. You saw the movie, right? I have not seen where it's on Frank yet, but I've been thinking about it. Oh, a lot. you haven't seen, but it's a free adaptation of the diary. There are only three countries in the free world, I'd say, that didn't buy the movie for a for TV released, TV broadcast. Can you guess what countries they are? Oh no! Now I'm afraid it's America because I would have watched it. I think if it was on Netflix or anything like that. Is it? Yeah, it's America, it's Israel, and the third country obviously has no influence on the Anne Frank story. It's Germany. So these are the three countries, and all the other, 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 other free world. I'd say in England and France and the Australia. Not only it was bought, but it's also going to be broadcast and screened for kids in education system. So are you telling me that the governments of those other countries paid you for the privilege of broadcasting it uh, to their country because they thought it would be a public service? I think people are not that interested in Holocaust content anymore. Wow. You know, I wrote that column, which I, which I think you read, referencing the Ken Burns special, and he kind of followed the Frank family. Did you watch that? And uh, not yet. It it was not aired here. I read about it. I can't wait to see. The guy's a genius. Right. And he had some images of the Franks and really uh, documented how Anne Frank's father saw the danger, moved to a Western country, the Netherlands, immediately started prospering there because he was a good man, a good dad. Then he had to go into hiding. And why don't you pick it up from there? This Anne Frank story, uh, I mean, it's so compelling. And the reason why she is so famous is because she was just an adolescent girl feeling the things that Western children feel, thinking about boys, all of that. 
But beyond that, she was just an amazing writer. I, I think I got it from watching one of your interviews. When you think about it, she's the greatest writer at a young age of all time. Is that true? Absolutely. Nothing like that. Look, only in the Netherlands, there were 2,000 diaries written during the war. Uh, so to shine out one out of 2,000, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's just, uh, it's just uh, unbelievable, but there are good reasons. First, she was an unbelievable writer. She was a genius. Second, if you think about it, um, the diary is kind of a coming-of-age memoir of, a, of this girl, and it doesn't have, it doesn't contain the horrors of the Holocaust. No starvation in the ghetto, no executions in the camps, right? It's like an inner story of a girl in captivity surrounded by uh, six adults, and she had um, a, a lot of skill to observe around her towards the, the world of the, the adults and everything. But there's no, I mean, beside that, there are no horrific stories in the diary because she stopped writing when they were captured and the dreadful time, the last seven months of her life are not in the diary. Right. It is a, a classic warning, though. And for a while, it was taught. I think I read it in uh, Denver Public Schools coming up. Everybody did. It's not that long. It's written in beautiful prose. I mean, you studied it, Ari. Um, tell us how many times you read it, looking for inspiration, which eventually came Tell us about the process and why this is one book you really didn't get tired of the writing because it's so, I mean, she was a, a prodigy, right? She, she was a genius. She was a genius, yes, absolutely. She was a genius, but she was not perfect. She was a, also a human being and she was real and she was funny and she could be sometimes very mean. And she had a very complex relationship with her mother. She was a real person. It was much more than the icon they made out of her. You know, your beautiful first movie, well, the one that we heard about, Waltz with Bashir, you've done a lot more than that. But the Academy Award one was kind of in a dream state. And I was studying about you and then Anne Frank. And I went to bed and I think I saw online, a beautiful picture of Anne, and it's kind of brought to life with modern technology, and my God, what an Ashkenazi beautiful punam she has on her face. Is there something about the way she looked that is part of this story, too? When you are, when you are doing an animated movie with an iconic person like Anne Frank, you can't really go too far away from 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 uh, from how she really looked you know you, you don't have a you you don't have a free artistic choice you need to be loyal 
to her. But also, I think we stretch the limits in many ways uh, to create the Anne Frank of the movie itself. And so what did you do? I mean, Anne was attractive. I don't know. That, what, well, did, did I you think we had, a long, uh, we had a long process um, of a uh, first way we sculptured her. Then we took the sculpture. The sculpture was, as, I think, as close as we could get to, to Anne Frank. Then we had a still photographer taking pictures of, of the sculpture from 150 different positions. Then we took the pictures and with pencil, someone brought them back to, to, to two-dimension classic drawings of Anne Frank. And... Um, and then, you know, um, we, we had like 150 facial positions of Anne Frank for each and every animator in four countries that were working on, on the movie. This, this process alone took a year. Wow. And the, the, the and, film itself contains, contains 160,000 drawings. Unbelievable. What a process. Yeah. How long did it take to make this movie? Uh, it took me eight years and the team four years. How do you go about putting that together? Is it public financing, investors? Well, uh, it's a, it started as a co-production of five countries. Um, Israel, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, and the U.K., in the Netherlands later, and then during the, the pandemic, <clears throat> we had to expand all over the world because studios were collapsing absolutely. Yes, and now when did you give it birth? Where, where was the grand opening premiere? It was in Cannes Film Festival last year. How did it go? Uh, it was a lovely premiere, absolutely lovely. And then we opened in France. Um, parallel to cinemas, we went to school, and it was screened to very young audience. And are you happy with the reaction? Yes, I'm happy. Uh, I thought, um, I mean, it was released during um, during the, the 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 last wave of the pandemic, the Ubicon, so it was not that classic. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, uh, this is the fate of the movie. I know, and we are all subject to the times in which we live. Let me give out the date. It's Wednesday, November 9th, 7 p.m. It's the University of Denver's Holocaust Awareness Institute welcoming Academy Award-nominated director Ari Fullman for a special screening of his latest animated feature, where is Anne Frank? You know, in the Ken Burns special, he kept referring to her, or actually it was the uh, narrator, that coyote guy who's really excellent. He, he kept calling Aunt Frank Annalise Frank, almost like... Yeah, that's her, that's her full name. Right. So, Annalise, Annalise Marie. Annalise Marie Frank. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I didn't know her. Yeah. I did not know that. And I... 
I think it was kind of a device for people to not necessarily realize that this is going to be Anne Frank, but of course it was. And it wasn't, uh, it was a good production. I'd be interested in your reaction, but you've said some things that intrigue me because I've been to Israel one time for a week. It was a whirlwind, and I was broadcasting from there at the Jerusalem Post building. And I'm looking forward to going back someday. I think you've been to Denver one time. Is that true, Ari? Yeah, I was in Denver in 2011, screening Walt Bashir. And so I'm sure you went all over America. And you, in the beginning of our conversation, you said um, that I should not be surprised with what's going on in America now. Did you feel that when you were touring 10 years ago? Did you say, you know, this seems nice, but it's all going to break down the way it really has over the last 10 years? Did you see that coming? No, back then, no, of course not. I mean, if I predicted that someone like Trump will be president of of America, no. Did you? Did anyone? No. And I I didn't realize that Trump was this horrible of a character, but he really has emerged as one of the all-time worst. And it's just shocking to me that so many people who live around me support this guy. I mean, Colorado is a fairly uh, progressive place, but uh, Wyoming is just to our north, sort of like Lebanon and Hezbollah to your north. These people, what are they thinking? What what do you think is going on? Uh, well, it's like I'm no expert in 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 American inner politics, um, but I think if you think it about the world, <clears throat> you you can see Urban, and you can see in Turkey, and you can see even in Scandinavia becoming right wing. And the rise of the right wing in Italy, and now probably in Israel, it's it's. I mean, it's not that unique now in in the U.S. When you think about it, maybe you're more surprised than what it was in the election in Italy. But it's it's. I mean, it is that it's 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 worldwide. Let's go back to what you said about the three countries that did not purchase your film to show to their public, and that being United States, Israel, and Germany. What do you think's going on there? Uh, it's not theatrical. I'm talking about television. Right. Um, I, th- I think um, it's, uh, it's, it's weird. Also, I think all the executives that were about to buy the movie and watch it, they were all Jewish. I mean, most of them, in America at least. So it's hard for me to stay. That was one of the most shocking things from the Ken Burns special. I should have known about it. There are books that have been written about it, but the movie industry in the 30s held back from saying saying anything bad about fascism or Hitler or Mussolini. And these were a lot of Jewish guys. I bet you were aware of that as a filmmaker. What what was going on then, and what are the lessons for today? Uh, I think the lesson is sad because I think it's not personal. It's not. It was not personal or not 
something that I mean it, it, it connects to the movie. I think that there is less and less interest in the in 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 this in this part of the history. Is that true in Israel? Absolutely. People want to move on from talking about the Holocaust. Yes, people wanna they wanna move on. Yeah, they absolutely wanna move on. Wow, isn't the Holocaust the reason for the modern state of Israel? It demonstrated that the Jewish people will need a place uh, to be safe. How, how could it? Well, how, that, how could it not be? I think. Uh, I think uh, the. I think probably the Jewish state wouldn't have been established in 1948, at least. Yeah. Uh, and and with with uh, the decision in the United Nations 47, like two years after the Holocaust, this wouldn't have happened without the Holocaust. So it's like a it's like the base, and it's the very base, and it and it was continuously ongoing issue, but the country has changed so much. Um, the, it's like uh, you're getting um, you're getting disattached from 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 the missile that launched you. You know what I mean? Yes. So I hear frustration. Here you are making Holocaust movies. You didn't grow up with that ambition. Maybe you wanted to move away from it, but the reality and the lessons and the stories just need to be told. And it seems to me that you're a little more than a little upset that people aren't embracing it and saying yes. Instead, they say, no, we're not interested. We don't want to hear about Anne Frank anymore. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yes, I think you're right in many ways. You can say also that it, it, uh, it, it's a sign of growing up. Also, you know, but um, I don't know. It's tough. Well, I look at Anne Frank as the ultimate victim. Again, I was prosecutor. She's a crime victim and ultimately Absolutely. a victim of murder. And Paul Pelosi was a crime victim, a home invasion, an attempted assassination of him and his wife. Has to have brain surgery and yet people don't want to hear about these things. And it's like, holy cow, if you don't care about crime victims, innocent victims in their own home just trying to live their life, then you are detached. And I bring it back to you, Ari. You served in military conflicts. You've written about it. Is there something that's being dehumanized in all of us? No, I, I wouldn't go so far. But I think when the film was made, and especially for children, I think parents thought they should be overprotective and not take them to the movies, uh, most of them. And they, 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 they would prefer to go to a Pixar movie, I most likely. Yes. Well, just, uh, I'm so grateful for your time. What's the future in Israel? Is it bright? Is it dismal? Uh, your politics are very confusing to us. What do you think is going to happen next over there? 
Uh, personally, I think it's going to be a disaster. And uh, I think uh, extremists, fundamentalistic extremists are going to take over. But uh, I think, as always, and most of the times uh, in history, until they don't hit rock bottom, changes are not going to come. So we are, I think we're facing some bad years and maybe afterwards we will go to another round that will bring compromises uh, <clears throat> that might find a solution. And when you talk conflict. about extremists, are you talking about on the right or on the left or on yeah. both? Yeah, on, on the right wing, because they are going to rule probably. In Israel, and the ultimate right wing leader, in my mind, is Vladimir Putin, reportedly the richest guy on earth. Do you think he's pulling strings in Israel and America? Uh, I don't know if he's pulling strings, but I think Israel didn't support heavily the Ukraine because they were worried about Putin and about the million Jews that are still in Russia. So, yeah. Right. And what's your view of America? Uh, I, I, it's like beyond me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't answer about inner politics in America. Are you excited to come to America? We're excited to see I you. I am November super night. excited. I am super excited. It's a long tour. It starts in Princeton. The day after tomorrow, and it's in Stanford. So I crossed the entire country with the movie Eleven Universities and screen it and talk about it. So I think it's going to be fantastic. Wow. Princeton, Stanford, any other big school names you want to drop? We're going to Denver, Chicago, Duke, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Missouri, Ann Arbor, Michigan, just to name a few. Do you know what's in Do you know what's in Columbus, Ohio? And my sound producer is from there, so you better get this right. What? The Ohio State University in Columbus. I yeah. bet you're going to be on that campus, or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I, I am. They are. Uh, they are big in Columbus, and you are big in the film world. And what an honor it was to speak to you. From Israel, it's not every day I get to talk with a filmmaker, and we wish we could talk under happier times. Uh, The movie, it's about Anne Frank. I think it's going to be beautiful, and uh, it's a nice auditorium. We'll see you in Denver at the JCC. Thanks again. All right? Shalom. Thank you. Thank you. Shalom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or 
I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, 303-734-7156. Gosh, it's good to welcome Gino Geraci back to my show. In the radio days, we talked a lot on air, off air. Mm -hmm. He's a radio star for the Salem Media Group. Gino, thanks a lot for doing my podcast. Oh, it's always a privilege, Craig. I so appreciate our friendship and um, all that you've done over the years. And uh, as always, I'm a great fan and admirer of yours, as you know. Well, that's really something we've interacted a bit in my work as a lawyer because a lot of my clients are Christians, and God knows that I know a good Christian pastor, a loving guy. That's always been my experience. He is the founding pastor of Calvary South Denver and Calvary Chapel de Santa Fe. You are Uh something else. Tell everybody about your background, Gino. Well, I was born in New Orleans, grew up in Southern California, went to the University of San Francisco, um, had the privilege of, well, I I was in social services for about seven years and... um, Went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, planted a church in Santa Fe. And of course, then we came to the great state of Colorado. It just so happened uh, our church was just a few blocks from Columbine High School. And of course, Craig Silverman, um, nobody knows better than you the, the horror, the tragedy that we all experienced in 1999. Can you believe it's been 23 years? But I was a first responder. Well, let me, since you referenced me. I, I didn't have that much to do with Columbine. I was on national TV that night on Geraldo Rivera's show trying to right. explain the inexplicable, but I didn't lose anybody in Columbine. And so a lot of people were affected, much more including you, because right. you, you had that community there. What year did you get to Colorado? I got to Colorado in 1992. and um, Obviously, a lot's happened since 1992, um, and then I was also a first responder at Ground Zero with with uh, 
Um, my friend Franklin, Franklin Graham, who happens to be, you know, the son of Billy Graham. And, and then I became the, the chaplain for the uh, Denver division for the, for, the, uh, for the FBI. And I was the FBI chaplain from 2005 to 2019, which gave me the opportunity to be a first responder at the Aurora movie theater shooting. I was a part of what's called the CIP team, which is the critical incident program with the chief medical officer, a, uh, a special agent and myself. So if there were mass casualty circumstances on west of the Mississippi, we responded. And so much of my life has been spent um, in service. But um, again, it's it's been a privilege. Gosh, the trauma that you've dealt with. Not me, but you, Gino. How long have you been with Salem Media Group? How did that happen? Well, you know, in the 1990s, um, I was asked to fill in on an afternoon program. I had been involved with radio in my youth. I had my first radio program at the age of 18 in Apple Valley, California. I had did some, did some radio in, in Southern California. And um, and so I was doing, like you, um, guest hosting a lot. And then after Ground Zero, you know, 9-11, Salem Media asked me to come on um, on a regular program. And so I've had a um, an afternoon program, can you believe it, for 20 years, 20 plus years. It's unbelievable. You are the most stable person in the building. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's called Crosswalk with Gino Drazy. What's your uh-huh. 94.7, the word? Now, sure. It, it, you know more about Salem than I do. You got hired way before I did, and you lasted a lot longer. You're still going strong. Do you do the afternoon every day? Yes, Monday through Friday from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And then um, every once in a while, I, I have the great opportunity to do a program. It's called the Christian Outlook. With uh, it's, it's sponsored by the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. It's, it's, a, it's a national program that's aired on about 120 stations where we talk about what you know the most about, public policy issues. And, and um, I... I you know, I, I I try to keep current on what's going on in the culture, but my love and my um, my great interest is in uh, world religions, in in um, yeah, in that's how where people- we're going. Yeah, because you are so right. knowledgeable. Here's how you sum it up on your website: Crosswalk with Chino Jurassi is best. How do you pronounce your last name? I want to do it right. Well, most people say Geraci, but in Italian, Craig Silberman, it's Geraci. My father and my grandfather were from the island of Sicily. I know you're Sicilian. We're going to get to all that. So Crosswalk <laughs> with Gino Geraci is uh-huh. a fast-paced call-in program that features a number of elements not found anywhere else. The program includes an entertaining mixture of news and culture from a biblical worldview, interviews with artists, authors, and leaders, answering questions about, all caps, everything from a scriptural perspective. Man, I love talking to you, and I think it's so cool you are doing this. 
And if I understand Salem's business model correctly, it's they come to a market, say like Colorado, and they have three elements. They have a religious station, which uh-huh. would be like 94.7 the word. They have right. conservative talk like 710 Can US. And then Correct. they have a Spanish language station that what, does a little of both? Yeah, I think so. And it's it was called Radio Luz, which Luz, of course, is the Spanish word for light. And as you know, we have a growing uh, Hispanic population in the, in the front range, and and we're grateful for them. Well, yeah, I, I definitely uh, think it's an interesting model. And would you say Salem is more about making money or more about wooing people to uh, their religious point of view? Well, you know, that's a great question. Salem has over 100 stations all across the great country. But uh, again, as as you probably know, it's been conservative radio that has kept conservatism on the map. And I don't know about their business model or making money. I guess if the stock market and, and the stock value is any indication, um, it's been a tough road for them to make money and preserve wealth over the years. But somehow they've managed to stay in the business. <laughs> and pay you, right? So that's kind of cool. I mean, <laughs> that but, is kind of cool. But, but you have a huge pulpit. Tell everybody about Calvary South. Well, again, uh, Calvary South Denver is a is a church that's located in, in southwest Denver in in Littleton. And just recently, my son is the pastor of Calvary South Denver. My middle son is the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Rio Dosa, New Mexico, and my oldest son is is a major in the army. He's the battalion commander oh at Fort gosh. Sill, Oklahoma. And so all of my children are, um, I'm so very, very proud of them. But, but Calvary is a mega church. I mean, that's a yeah. bigger sanctuary than any shoal in town, I'll tell you that. How, how many people does it yeah. hold? Uh, a little over a thousand. But, uh, yeah, you've been, you've been there and uh, it was so it was such a privilege to see you at the church when we had our Ask a Jew segment with uh, Dennis Prager and Hugh Hewitt. And what, was what an the interesting date of time that, that event? was. What was the date of that event? You know, I wish I could remember, but I can you believe it? It, it seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't no it? No kidding, because I liked everybody and and they liked me. And you and I used to like each other, and I hope we will throughout this interview, but... As I recall, and we won't know because he managed to make it, I was the backup Jew, right? If something <laughs> if something would have happened to Prager, I would have gotten up there and you could have asked me these questions and and you can during this interview as well. But this isn't about me, this is about you, and I think you have a little Jew in you, too. Do you want to tell everybody about that Sicilian, mixed, wacky, yes, well, wonderful well, background that you have? As you can imagine, in the early 1950s, for uh, Jewish people and Gentile people to get married, it was something quite unusual, and... Uh, my mother, her family were descended from Hungarian Jews. My my grandfather's name was Ephraim Rosamund, and uh, much against my grandparents' wishes, my mother uh, married my father. She 
Um, they, they were non-observant Jews. They were not religious Jews by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, my mother converted to Catholicism in order to marry my father. But tragically, they got a divorce. And and so my father really wasn't a good Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. My mother wasn't a practicing uh, Jewish person. And I was a part of a generation, Craig, that you're probably familiar with, where parents said, well, let, let them grow up and decide for themselves. And and I don't think that that's a very good model. I think that we as parents should make every effort to uh, impart to our children the great traditions and heritages that that I'm, I'm going to suggest liter- literally belong to us. I wanted back up to your mama was Hungarian of origin. Well, right. Well, her parents were descended from Hungarian Jews. But how did they survive the war in Hungary? That was a rough place to be no, Jewish. No, no. Yes, yes. Well, my family had come um, uh, generations before— To uh, America? To America. Okay. My, my father and my grandfather came after the war. So it, on, the, on the Sicilian side, my, grand, on, on, my grandfather— was raised in Mussolini's fascism. Mm. And my father was a very young man when he came to the United States of America and met and married my mother. They were, they were in, a, in a, uh, a housing project in New Orleans. So there was a very large Jewish population and an Italian population in New Orleans um, after the war. Wow, right, because if there's any place that it's a hodgepodge of cultures, uh, it's New Orleans. Right. And so that's where you come from. And since your mama was a Jew, doesn't that make you a Jew? You know, what a great question, huh? Uh, I, I, I should be asking you that question. What makes a Jew a Jew? A matrilineal descendancy. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to get married to a Jew, I don't think you would have to convert if you wanted to practice. That's right. the that's, and I appreciate the ask a Jew portion, and you can fire away. Do you feel that? I mean, you know that um, Judaism is passed matrilineally. Islam is patrilineal. Right. Now that would be confusing right. if you had a father who was Muslim, but your father was Catholic, and then. You kind of found your own way. Yeah, I kind of did find my own way, and um, you know, there was a very interesting. You know, I, I'm growing up in a world very much like the world you, you know, you and I are about the same age, and you know, we what had. What year ask, did you graduate high school? 1974. 1974 for me. That's why we get yeah. along. We did grow up the yeah. same time. Yes. Yeah, so we, you know, we we gathered around the same campfire. We listened to the same songs growing up. We watched the same television programs. We rooted for the same sports teams. Um, and you know, again, we're we're in this big culture, and we're asking ourselves, what's real? What's true? What's valuable? What matters? And like you, I was on the trajectory uh, to become an attorney. I had no desire to be a Bible teacher. And I went to the University of San Francisco to go to graduate so I could go to Hastings to go to law school. But I found myself in a different trajectory. And um, 
And I don't regret the trajectory because I think God in his grace and his mercy has given me a wonderful life and a wonderful family and wonderful children. Well, how did it happen? I know enough about San Francisco that the great Bill Russell went there, and it's a Catholic school, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes it's a Catholic school, a Jesuit school. and um, But it was very liberal. I mean, it was a very liberal school from, a, from both a political and an ideological perspective. And so um, I wouldn't have characterized myself as a quote-unquote conservative by any stretch of the imagination back in those days. But um, again, I appreciate my, my education and, and that time of my life. And So what was the crossroad, if I can use but a word I think like the that? Cro- yeah, the crossroads for me was I truly wanted to try to understand what's real and what's true. And I was at an, an event. Uh, it was a, a Christian uh, concert. And as you can imagine, you know, when you and I were young, music and concerts were a very, very important part of our life. And I, w- I was skeptical about religion in general and was disillusioned by uh, Catholicism. And um, there was a very famous uh, group when you and I were growing up called uh, called Buffalo Springfield, and then Buffalo Springfield oh, turned into Wait, they turned it into cross. Happened in here. Yeah. What well, one of the guys is, who sang it was exactly, exactly clear. Well, there was a guy who played in that group. His name was Richie Furey. Well, he played with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and they broke up, and and he formed a group called Poco. But then he became a Christ follower. He became a follower of Jesus, and he became a musician. And uh, and I was I went to a concert, and um, I I heard the message, and I was impressed. I my heart, my mind was deeply impressed, and I found myself on it in a different trajectory, thinking about the claims of Jesus. The the and and again, what most people don't realize, even Jewish people don't realize, is probably one of the best sources of information about what it meant to be a Jew in the first century are these documents in the New Testament written by Jewish people. And so I found that fascinating. And so then I started opening and reading and, and now, wait, trying hey, to— Did you find it fascinating because you were aware of your own Jewish heritage? I think so. I mean, I found it fascinating because, uh, again, I was it, it, living in that world of 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 a, of a kind of a, a dual world. Right. You know, who am I? Right. What am I? What what? And what was it? What was it? If I can be so bold, that you didn't like about Catholicism? You know, I I found myself. Um, let me tell you what I appreciated about it, and that was ritual and tradition, but it didn't seem to be spiritually satisfying. In other words, I didn't feel like I was connected in a meaningful way. So when and, Richie started singing, it got to you in a way that that ritual never could? Correct. And so so this— What was it, the it, song? I want to hear Pardon it. me? What was the, the song? song? Yeah, if you know. It, well, again, the song, I actually remember the lyrics. It was two roads from which to choose, the road to glory or the fool's highway. Two roads from which to choose, the rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. 
choose before the Savior, the Messiah comes. Choose. Uh, and and so I, I felt this need to to make a choice and walk on a path and head in a in a direction. Wow, I've never heard that story. Thanks a lot for sharing that and the power of music. Yeah, it really is. And you know, I, I know we were going to talk about anti-Semitism, and one of one of the things that I found interesting there was. Uh, there was a, a I, I want to say it was I want to say it was a former prime minister of Israel, and he was talking about um, some mistakes, if you will, that were made by his close friend Ronald Reagan. Um, it, oh, Menachem Begin. No, it was Perez. It was Perez. Right. And, and, right. And Simon the, the, Perez. Simon yeah, Perez, Shimon, who won yeah, the Shimon, uh, Nobel Prize. Right. Simon uh, Perez was friends with President Ronald Reagan okay, during right. the Cold War. And it, it, he, it, he, he had, a, he had a, a show of support for West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. And then Reagan visited Bitburg in World War II. It's a German military mm-hmm. cemetery where 49 Nazi Waffen SS soldiers were buried. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, again, this, this was a, a problem. It, it put a strain on Reagan and Perez's friendship. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Perez famously said, when a friend makes a mistake, he remains a friend, but the mistake remains a mistake. And, and, you know, you talk about being Sicilian, Sicilian people, like Jewish people are very, very loyal. Um, in other words, friends don't come easily, and we value friendship. And so, when friends make a mistake, I'm not looking for reasons to end friendship. I'm looking for reasons to continue friendship, even when I perceive that a mistake might have been made in our friendship. And so, I, that always impressed me, and um, that's why, again, I, I so value your friendship. Wow. And we haven't talked um, really since I left Salem. I called you and we started chatting like teenage girls, if I could use uh-huh. an expression. And <laughs> and that always seemed to be the way. And I remember that ask the June night. I think I stayed late. I looked at your coin collection. I just yes, so it's about Jewish, you know, and it's a Jewish culture. And tell everybody Jewish. about that coin collection. What what are you doing? I don't. It's like Marsh Fogel is on. I call him the billion-dollar yeah. baseball card collector. And I think you have, what, about, is it up to a billion dollars in rare coins that you're well, keeping? Well, it's, 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 you know, again, I, it's, there, there's a few coins that really are valuable. But, but there were two events in Jewish history that changed not just Judaism and, and what it means to be a Jew. It was, the, the revolt that took place between 66 and 70 AD, where the Romans were occupying Jerusalem and Judea, and um, there, there came a point, there was a tipping point, and from 66 to 70, the Roman armies, of course, surrounded Jerusalem and eventually destroyed it. Well, during that time period, there were coins that were minted by Jewish people. They didn't have the privilege or the the, the authority to, to mint their own coins. And um, 
tragically, the, the, the temple was destroyed. And then in 131 to 134, there was another uprising that took place by a man named Bar Kostaba or Bar Kokhba. This is during the time of Hadrian. And what, what's fascinating to me, again, is the Jewish people wanted to retain both a, a, a political, national, social, religious identity, and they too minted coins. And so, again, that revolt was put down. So, but what was fascinating to me both about these coins is that these were the last instruments that were made by free Jewish people. And so what was what's fascinating to me is the opportunity that these little medallic markers, these little bits of history, these little breadcrumbs that have been left for us that tell us a story about the Jewish people and about the pain and the struggle of the Jewish people. And as you can imagine, I don't need to tell you that the oldest hatred in the world is Jew hatred. And so I've often wondered why that is. And um, so I've come to believe that it's because of the God of Judaism. Uh, in, in other words, I've come to believe that that it's irrational. This, the you know, the sort of the libel, like Kanye West said um, not too long ago. You know that the Jews rule the world or they control everything. Well, that libel is unsustainable. You you and I know that the Jewish people do not control the world. If that were true, then things would be different. <laughs> But you under you understand my point, sure. and 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 so, what is it about these libels that became so pernicious? Well, I, well, and and, yeah. and in my view, it's because it's because of hatred for the God of the Jews. In other words, it's the God of the Jews that. Um, well, it's the God of the Jews, really. Produced not just Judaism but Christianity, Islam, exactly. Abraham. But Ex so, so why why is the resentment? If let's just back it up a little bit and say that you do have a serious ancient coin collection, and then <laughs> I, I'm I'm just thinking about you talking about the last free period for quite a while for the Jewish people, uh -huh. and I'm thinking about the start of the Rothschild. Family. I'm reading a book, House of Rothschild, by Niall yes. Ferguson, and yes, he very very smart man. Uh, the Jews were put in ghettos, including in Frankfurt, where they were restricted to a rectangle of space, and they had to live in these tiny houses, kind of on top of each other. Then the French came in. There was more freedom, and what was the trade that uh, the first guy got into? Um, it was uh, collecting coins and uh, right. antiques, and then he started trading that and trading other things. Then he got his boys involved, and then they sent them all over Europe. And it's really something that they built their wealth collecting coins, kind of like you have, Gino. How fabulously <laughs> rich are you, and do you tie that all to the church or what? Well, you know what's really funny is 
I one of the to me the fascinating things about coins is when you do collect coins, well, you're never broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be an interesting time since people predict the end of regular money. That'll be interesting. Are they made out of gold? No, well, I have ancient coins that are made out of gold, but most of the ancient coins that I have are made out of silver. I do have some gold coins from the United States of America, um, you know, when we still produced gold coinage prior to, to 1933. And again, you know, when, when you talk about coinage and money and currency and economy and Bitcoin and all of that other kinds of stuff, it is fascinating to me. It's just fascinating to me what people value, why they value it, and then the story that that emerges from that value. And so I've all I've always found that fascinating. What fascinates me is we had what was it a midday conversation, sort of like this, and then you went on your radio show and you talked about anti-Semitism because it was on my brain. And it right. is a lot. And then I listened to that show, and you talked about friendship and love. And honestly, that's the best part of Christianity, as I learned about it. And what you can, you know, you can put what I know about Christianity in a thimble, really. I'm not knowledgeable, <laughs> but I know that some people preach love, and I think love might be the answer. The Beatles said it, and... Sure. And I think people say that from the pulpit and Christian churches, and I love that. And you were trying to figure out in that show, and I listened to the podcast, you listed the various reasons that anti-Semitism emerges, and one of them was deicide, right? The killing of Christ, right. and you said— Right, it's the deicide theory, the, the, the theory that the Jews are hated— because they killed Jesus Christ. In other words, this sort of the anti-Semitism that comes from a, a, a bitterness or you know a, a, some sort of religious feud um, that that people hated the Jews because they they saw them as uh, Christ killers. Right. And and what did uh, you say about that on your show? Do you remember? You had a caller. Yeah. Yeah. I I I remember talking about. That in re- in regards to uh, the deicide, the, the that the Bible in the New Testament makes it clear that the Romans were the ones who actually killed Jesus. Now, again, the Jews did act as accomplices. In other words, one of the reasons why Jesus was killed is he made a claim, an outrageous claim for Jewish people, and and that that is that he is God's son. Now it wasn't until a few hundred years later that the that the Jews were cited as the murderers of Jesus. So in the first and the second century, this wasn't an argument. So one wonders why the Romans weren't hated as much as the Jewish people. But again, according to the New Testament documents, as recorded by Luke, Jesus made the astonishing statement. He said, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do." Well, that's so not he, much of a defense. Jews are smarter than that. And that word accomplice, what does that mean? Because I come from the criminal justice world. What does that mean to you? 
Right. And so, yeah, when you when you talk about an accomplice, uh, for me, it means a person who willingly participates in an egregious crime. Here's how it's defined under Colorado law. With the okay. intent to promote or facilitate the commission of a crime, that person okay. aids, uh, advises, encourages, or uh, abets the crime. Right. And that's what you're saying the Jews did? That's what I'm saying that they were accused of doing. No, you said they were the accomplices. In a very real sense, according to the New Testament documents. Right. But do you know know what the punishment is for being an accomplice? Well, again, I don't know what it is under Colorado law, but under uh, It's the same as the perpetrator. You are equally Uh, guilty. It's exactly. 100%. Maybe you were here during the summer of violence. I think you got here just in time for that bit of trauma. And I mean, in the, in the Holler case, two guys attacked Tom and Christina Holler, and it wasn't exactly clear who did what, but since they acted together as accomplices, they were equally guilty. Or if you drive uh, somebody to a bank robbery, you're an accomplice, and you are equally guilty because... You knew what they were going to do, if that can all be proved. So that's really a harsh accusation that the Jews, you're saying they were accomplices to the murder of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, personally, I have an alibi for that night. I wasn't there. (laughs) That you weren't there? (laughs) No. And you know, see, and this is what's interesting to me. You talk about the alibi and, and, and that you weren't there. In, in, um, in first century Judaism, it was the belief that every human being were descendants from Adam. In other words, that we are all human because we're made in the image of God. That God, the the God of the Bible, created human beings in his image and likeness. So that doesn't mean with two eyes and nose and a mouth, but apparently it seems to mean as functioning creatures who have value, who have the ability to, to know and be known. And so, again, I, I think the, one of the ways that I've come to grips with what the New Testament says about this whole fiasco is that human beings themselves, uh, it, that, that it wasn't Jewish people. And see, this is the whole scapegoat idea, that when you take the acts of a particular person and then you you as- ascribe it to every single member of of that group of people or that tribe of people. Um, it's it would be like us accusing you know every single per- German person of of being guilty of the Holocaust. Right, but now, but, but but just the way you said it on your show and you repeated it almost exactly is the Jews were accomplices. That's plural, more than one Jew. I don't know how many. And more than one accomplice, that there were many Jews. And I guess well, if you go with that yeah, story, there were, but it would be interesting to know, well, that, that sounds like a collective sort of guilt. And and you could see how that would well, lead to anti-Semitism was, and a lot yeah, of and, slaughters of a lot of people. Well, and I think that Your that's mother's part of family. The, right, and I think that this is part of the challenge. Part of the challenge was... Um, that 
that when you take that view and then you impugn an entire group of people, um, that it, in my view, there is a supernatural element. And I, I know you and I have, have talked about this, but there's a spiritual element. And the spiritual element is that there's a, a, a series of, 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 of a compilation, a racial theory, an economic theory, outsider theory, scapegoat theory, that the Jews are hated because they're believed to be the cause of the world's problems. You know, they're, they're hated because they killed Jesus. They're hated because they're different from everyone else. They're hated because they possess too much wealth and power. They're hated because they're believed to be an inferior race. And so as you go down these hatreds and then you uh, begin to address them and, and you ask and you answer the question, is this reasonable or rational? And as you know, it isn't reasonable or rational. It's irrational. But is irrationalism a plausible and substantive and a compelling reason to to account for but it's not the persecutions it's, of Jewish people over thousands of years? But, but it's not totally irrational because Jews are very accomplished and we are proud of our accomplishments in a number of fields, right? And we right, are I mean, successful and and you could take the, the movie making business was pioneered by Jewish people and we shouldn't have to run away from it. And then you have talked about the Dia side with Jews as accomplices. So the reasons are kind of clear, but one that I heard when a caller spoke to you that interesting hour to me, talked about, you know, he said, I like the Jewish people, but then they talked about going to Israel. Do you remember that? And you said you've been there 18 times. 18 times, yeah. Right. And he said, well, when I go, I feel like the Jews are a little elitist. Right, right. I remember having that conversation. And I remember, again, talking about the fact that, saying that that wasn't my experience at, at all, that that most of the Jewish people that I've worked with and been with, um, well, they're, they're actually not religious Jews or observant Jews. They're what some people might call secular Jews. But they, that 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 they were exactly the opposite of what the caller characterized them as. I know, but you're sort of implying that the more Haredi, and I think you distinguished yeah, Haredim, right? The, the, yeah. the more religious seem aloof or arrogant or elite, and I might say the same thing. But it just struck me when that guy said they seemed elitist, and then I hear about the elites, and then I went back. One of your other shows with uh, who's that congresswoman? And you liked her, the Hawaii uh, Democrat, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Tulsi yeah, Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. You did a show about her, and and she was talking about a cabal of global elites, and that's why she doesn't like the Dems anymore. And she was switching over. Whoa. Right. So I just heard that word elite. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I think that that w there's a couple of ways in a contextual way of thinking about it, and and so from the caller's perspective versus from my perspective, it might be a person who who is a self-proclaimed elitist, um, but to me, is there a, a kind of you talk about an inferiority complex versus a superior 
a superiority complex are so so to me i i think of it both in a good way like you in a bad way the pejorative way the bad way is an unsustainable self uh aggrandizement it it it's 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 what the bible talks about having an exaggerated sense of your own superiority and so to me that's what elitism is it's a it's an exaggerated sense of your own mm-hmm. um, superiority rather than in humility uh, uh, approaching issues from both a, a humble but 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 an honest way but, I but, mean, the, but that kind of gets me to try and understand Christianity because you you know Jews don't proselytize, but Christians are commanded to do so. Right, and, so, and Muslims so are you, commanded to do so. Say that, yeah, Muslims right by the sword sometimes. That's that's scary. You guys try to do it through good actions and love and persuasion, and, right? And and persuasion. But 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 when people say I don't want to hear it, can that right. be elitist or? After hearing it, they say it's not for me. Isn't that sort of disappointing? Well, I think sometimes it is disappointing, but but also, again, from a Jewish perspective, we Jewish people believe that God created human beings with the ability to choose or choose otherwise, and that God honors that choice. That that God Himself created us with the capacity to choose or choose otherwise. And so I think we have to both observe and respect people's ability to choose or choose otherwise, even if they make what you and I might think of as a wrong choice. But again, there there comes a point where the wrong choice becomes a criminal choice or a, a, a choice that becomes wicked or evil or problematic and you know, you're an attorney you you have an understanding of the law and the respect for the law and you understand that a person's freedom to choose doesn't mean the freedom to commit crimes or to hurt people right but and, uh, but if somebody won't submit to christianity or rejects or, it right is that a show of of elitism, I mean, Tina Peters. I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think that that's the right way of thinking about it. That it's a show of elitism, but I think that it might be uh, a, a a way of saying, hey, you know what? I don't find whatever it is that you believe or don't believe to be persuasive enough for me or convincing enough to me that I'm going to adopt whatever view you happen to embrace. Now, so so to me, that's the difference between the claims of Islam or the claims of Christianity, or even what are the claims of Judaism? And so when we ask and we answer the question, what makes Judaism or Islam or Christianity a credible faith that you are going to take the the, the essential ingredients of that faith and use those essential ingredients to make a life for yourself. Now I have to believe you were baptized. Am I right? Did, yeah, did, I was baptized as a as an infant. With you know, when like I said, my mother converted to Catholicism mm-hmm. uh, as a as an eight day old child, just like a Jewish person who's perhaps circumcised on the eighth day. Um, you know, the the child doesn't um, 
participate but did in you the do it again as you, as you went through your own crossroads and and heard the music did you yeah yeah and, yes. and, and was yeah, that I made another did, did, was water involved in a whole? Yes, 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 yes. And, and yes. was there somebody who was there who kind of shepherded you through it? Yes, yes. And, and was that person really kind of thrilled that you had embraced Christ alongside him? Yes. And so if that's the goal, and I bet it's thrilling, then what if that was successful with every Jew in America? Would that be good, bad? In my view, obviously, whenever you come to a place where you agree with God concerning the most important things in life, that's a good thing. So, again, we're we're left with this annoying, gnawing problem, and that is the human problem. What is the human condition? What, are we living in a broken world, a sinful world, uh, a damaged world? And I, I was thinking about this, Craig, because I was doing the deep dive into a guy named Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. who seems to have a great deal of influence among um, Jews and Christians and even Muslims. And Canadians. And, yeah. And Canadians. And I was wondering, what is it about this guy that seems so compelling to all of these different people? What is he saying? And, and what is he th- saying that is resonating with people. And I came to the understanding that what he's saying is that there's something broken, that there's something, if you want to use the term sinful in the Jewish sense of the term, as a transgression against God. And that, that um, so when you think about the source of, of sin and then the solutions to sin, in his youth, Jordan Peterson believed that Christianity wasn't the solution to the problem of sin. It was the source for the problem of sin. And then as he grew older and he began thinking about and observing the world in which he lived, he became a psychologist and a psychoanalyst, if you will. But he, but he was continually still puzzled with the idea, how have things gone wrong and, and how can we fix what's gone wrong? And I think that that's that's the bridge between Jews and Christians and Muslims. They all have to ask that question. What is the problem and how do we solve it? And of, of course, from a Christian standpoint is the problem is sin is rebellion against God. So for the Muslim, they would agree with that. They would say, and yeah, and so you have to submit to God, Allah, and in, in Islam itself means submission. Right. But in Judaism, but in Judaism, there's also law. But the law, as we understand it, at least as I understand it, and the lawgiver, Moses, that this really is a set of principles that have been given by God as he asks the question, here's how I want you to relate to me, and here's how I want you to relate to each other. Only six hundred and thirteen of them. We talk yeah, well, about the top 10 a lot, but 613, yes, talk, right. Yes, uh, yes, 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 and yes. And so as as you think about those 613, and again, religious Jews, observant Jews, think about those 613 things, but they don't just simply think of them in terms of things that I can and can't do. They actually do reflect on, well, why? Why do we have these rules? Just like you as an attorney, if you're representing a person who's jaywalking across the street, 
and you go, well, why why do we have laws about about that you have to stop at a red light or you get to go at a green light? And un, but behind that law is an idea of safety and and the ability to safely um, participate in the culture in which we live. All right, and, now I've you, got a question for you. This is on the double jeopardy for okay. eight hundred dollars. Why do Jews have to keep kosher? I think the Jews have to keep kosher in order to to dem. Well, I think there's a twofold reason. the The first is because of the laws of cleanliness, but to me, there's also the issue of distinction. In other words, in, in my view, part of the the kosher laws were related that the Jewish people are going to be di- distinct. Um, That's pretty from, good. I'm going to have to give Gentiles. you credit, right, that they would be distinct. But the other part about for cleanliness, I mean, some of that makes sense, I guess. Right, if right. You don't, so there's a, if you don't cook pork good enough, but bacon really is delicious, and it's not that dangerous now, so why should I abstain from it? And the answer that a religious rabbi would tell you is as follows. Because God said so. You know? Oh, right, right. Yeah. So, but, but, so, but, but think about what you just said. Because, again, we're living in a world that says, where can I go to get guidance? And as you know, Craig Silverman, people will say, well, the place where I'm going to get guidance from is what I think or how I feel. What I feel in my heart is what I'm going to do. Or a person might say, well, whatever the majority feels I'm going to do. Or, quote, unquote, whatever uh, the the government says I'm going to do. Or whatever my religious tradition says is go- I'm going to do. But again, to your point, what if God has spoken on a particular subject? And so the tendency in, in the Jewish rabbinical tradition over thousands of years wasn't to just stick to the commands, but to expand the right. command. That, that's, to expand. That way, that's like the Jesuits or the Reform right. Movement. Yeah, so, you know why? Because cheeseburgers are delicious. And I want to get to something that you know a lot about, and I know a very little. Can I ask you about Mussolini? You brought him up? Sure. From sure. your Sicilian, and you've studied this part of the world, right? And right. Well, yeah, my, my grandfather grew up in, in Mussolini's fascism. Right. And what was that all about? Who was Mussolini? How did and why did uh, he created fascism, right? Well, I think it's that an Italian people, word. Right. I, I think that from a, from a from a historical standpoint, um, it he he creates the, the the establishment of what was called the fascist of combat and he was a socialist politician so what he did is he takes socialism and he's going to apply it uniquely and specifically to the italian circumstance and so it, it, in in a very real way it's it's it, it's a it's his it's his view of the relationship of socialism and the Italian population. So so he he becomes what what you and I would now call Italian nationalism. So there's this drift from socialism to Italian nationalism and this is the same thing that 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 
that um, that Hitler embraced with German nationalism. And so fascism was founded to oppose egalitarianism and class conflict. Um, so, so what they wanted to do is transcend class lines. So in a way, there was a little bit of a rebellion against classical socialism. So Mussolini and his followers, they consolidated power through a series of laws it was that a transformed big, it the was, nation. It was a big pushback against classical socialism. And that's right, why— a, Right. Right. And so okay. they create a series of laws that transform the nation into a one-party dictatorship. And who were the opponents? Pardon me? And, and, and the oppositions were the damn communists, right? And they really weren't right. communists right. all over the place. Right. Russia and, just and, and, had, yeah. And that's, that's exactly right. So, and so, so they were on the political right. And, and the commies were on the political left. And the right. commies were doing horrible things in Russia. And, right. and uh, Italy didn't want that. Right. And so what was the position of the church through, the, through all of this? The position of the church, church, Mussolini, because he's trying to create this, within five years he establishes a dictatorial authority, and he, he moves towards a totalitarian state. But in 1929, he signs what's called the Lateran Treaty with the Vatican, so, so allowing the Vatican some semblance of, of autonomy and self-sufficiency. But it was throwing them a bone. It was throwing them a bone. In other words, what Mussolini was trying to do, because, again, at this point, um, the vast majority of Italian people are Roman Catholic. And so he's not trying to completely create yet another um, situation, but but again, I I think it was um, it was a, a difficult thing and a a a, a real problem. Um, and, and you know, this is the the other interesting thing about that, and and that is when when people uh, capitulate. To, to fascism and totalitarianism. Sometimes people are willing to give up their deeply held religious convictions in order to accommodate accommodate mm -hmm. totalitarianism and fascism. Or substitute it in. Right. That's what worries me. And uh, it, it's great to get your perspective on this. Hitler admired Mussolini. He liked fascism. Right. I mean, it becomes a dictatorship, and uh, it it almost led to uh, I don't know the end of civilization as we know it. Have you thought about exactly. how close we came? Yeah, uh, exactly. And we really, yeah, when when you when you remove these prohibitions and restraints, I mean, there there it, it, it's 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 to me it's unthinkable, it's unimaginable. Craig, I, I was I was watching a, an elementary school in San Diego where a woman is dressed up like a penis with a tutu, sex in order to introduce sexual circumstances to elementary school kids, and then again in the deconstruction era where 
where you remove whatever what I call creation restraints, that men aren't women and women aren't men and, and the correspondence theory of truth, and that that you you are what you think that you are in the deepest part of your mind. So that if I'm a biological male who wishes to identify as a female, then um, it's my will itself that creates reality. Wow, but that's a hard turn. Honestly, when you said uh, pro- prohibitions and restraints, when yeah, I, so- I, I thought you were going to go to how Mussolini and Hitler tore down institutions like the church and the court, and nobody could stand up to them. And I wasn't thinking about you know, uh, gay people or outrageous sexual displays, because to me that's it's just so trivial compared to these larger issues. Or am I well, wrong? And, 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 well, let, let me help, or, or maybe you're not wrong. But here's here's what I would challenge you with: that in order to tear down those institutions, to me, the most effective way to tear down those institutions is to tear down the philosophical matrix or the philosophical foundations that make those institutions possible. So imagine, imagine the institution of the family, where you say. Um, there's the mother, there's the father, there's the children, and the primary responsibility for the care, the custody, the training is a mom and a dad. It's not the government. But imagine if you can tear down the philosophical underpinnings of the family and say, you know what? The family is just a social construct that can exist or not exist at the whim of the government. And so that's what I'm talking about. I'm not disputing what you say. What I'm what I'm what I'm challenging you to think about is what if you tear down the foundations of these institutions so that a constitution uh, a constitutional republic be- just becomes a social construct, mm-hmm. where religion itself is just a social construct. In other words, Jews are Jews are Jews, Christians are Christians are Christians, Muslims are Muslims are Muslims, but all of these are artificial religious constructs, and the only thing that's real is what the government says. And you're free to be a Jew, Christian, Muslim, just so long as you comply with the philosophical ideology of the government that's in charge. All right, that sounds like Russia to me right now. Let's bring it up to modern times. Putin, he wears a cross around his neck. Do you believe he's a Christian? He believes he's a Christian. He would identify as a Russian Orthodox Christian. So again, imagine um, if I said to you, do you think that Marx was a Jew? Yes. Even though he was an atheist and didn't believe in the God of Moses or even follow anything having to do well, with Well, if he with renounced Mosaic. it, maybe, I mean, like, I, I, we, we kidded around about it, but you're not a Jew. You've been baptized a couple times, at least, that right. I've heard about. So I don't know if Marx ever converted, but I—, I I generally see, say, is, say he, is, was, this, he was born a Jew, and we don't run away from that. And it's, you know, when you right. talk about Jewish influence, we've talked about the Rothschilds, kind of invented capitalism. 
after they got right. into coins and trading textiles. They started getting into banking, and they created bonds, and then governments started borrowing from them. That's how they got powerful. Because right, and so Jews kind of created communism and capitalism. But in the meantime, I'm worried about guys like Putin who could end it all with the push of a button. Are you worried about no, that? No, no, and and that's that's part of the point that I think that we make, where we go, okay, is he a Christian? In the ideological sense, in other words, w- would he be a person who would him- himself? He would. He might self-identify as a Christian, but so when we ask and we answer the question, "Do you identify as a Christian?" He might say yes. Do you identify as a Russian oligarch or leader or however you want to characterize it? Remember, he would be a person who. <laughs> who holds to the view that he wants to make Russia great again mm-hmm. and that he's willing to do whatever is necessary in order to make Russia great again. And he is willing to invent. Um, and he's not going back to the 1950s. He's going back to the 1400s. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's the right way of thinking about it. In other words, I, I'm going to suggest to you that, that, that he is not a good communist or socialist, that he is an oligarchical he's a um, mobster. sovereign. He's he, like he's a mon- I, I ask people, you believe in the Russian mafia? I, I hope I didn't offend right. you since you're Sicilian, right? No, no, no. And I, I no 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 offense taken because you're exactly right. And that's the right way of thinking about it. He's a mobster. Right. And there is a Russian mafia, and he's the head of it, and I think he's the world's richest man, or maybe it's Elon Musk, one of the two. Yes, uh, yeah, I, one of the two is the richest man. And to your, you know, when we were talking about, um, so so we're back to the to the challenge of Marx and and okay. Putin. How can how can a Christian be? so hateful towards Christ and Christianity. So in the Marx sense, how can a Jew, even a converted Jew, be hateful to Jews and remain a Jew? Now, did Marx pull off a lot of atrocities? Wasn't he just more of an ideologue? Lenin kind of carried it out, right? Right, right. The way that I would put it is he's an accomplice. In in what sense is he an accomplice? He provides the ideological and philosophical foundations for Jew hatred. I know, but uh, that's a tough one to put on us because you've got to give us capitalism. You know, we're involved in a lot of ways. So it's just best not to judge people on their group, which gets me to what I'm so worried about. And let me put it to you this way, that term Christian nationalism, some people embrace it. Some people run away from it. What about you? Well, again, I usually, as you can imagine, the word is used in a pejorative sense. What do we mean by Christian nationalism? And again, I think the, the way that I think about it is different and 
than than how it's been characterized in, well, in it, the popular I, I, media. I kind of come from the political world, and I've been watching this Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she says, I love it. Yeah, and so does Lauren Boebert. They say, why should the church take a back seat? Why should there be any separation? Well, this, here's, 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 this is a Christian country, so when we get back to that, that's when we'll be great again. That's what well, I hear. And, well, and again, I think that there's several ways of thinking about it. Just like again, it, the the modern state of Israel, is it a Jewish state? What does it mean to be a Jewish state? It's clearly the the, the whole point of a Jewish state isn't to oppress Muslim and and Christian minorities. So. So the it's, way that it's, I would it's, think, it's, you've been there eighteen times. I've been there once, but the way I understand it, it's a refuge for Jewish people who've been chased countless times out of other countries, and exactly. it's the one place they can run. It seems to me Christians have a lot of places they can run besides America, or is that what it's all about? America should be a refuge for persecuted Christians throughout the world. I think that America should be a refuge for everyone who's persecuted. So, so in 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 my view, in and, my view, including, broadly, including uh, people south of the border, come up as many as you want. No, I, that's not what I mean at all. What okay. I mean, just just because you're a, a, a nation state, as a nation state, do do you have a right to secure borders? It, Israel secures its borders to the north against. Uh, Hezbollah and to the south against Hamas. And and again, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, the, the way that I would think about this is Christians individually. So there's a there's a difference between Christians as individuals and Christians corporately. M- Muslims will tell you that they should submit to the will of God. Christians will tell you that they should submit to the will of God. Jewish people, at least observant Jewish people, will tell you, do you think you have some sort of obligation to submit to the will of God? They might argue about what constitutes the will of God, but most are willing to concede that that's what they're doing. So again, we're back to a person's worldview and then their relationship to government. In a Christian, from a Christian perspective, Paul, a Jewish rabbi, in the first century, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he talks about the, the, the Christian's responsibility to the government. And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except it comes from God. And those who exist, uh, or those that exist, have been instituted by God. And so the so Christians are are whether you're in North Korea or Saudi Arabia or Israel, Christians are said, hey, you're to submit to the lawful authorities. This is different from the United States of America. So for me, nationalism is a sense of loyalty and commitment to one's country. So when you combine those two words together, Christian nationalism, Am I for a, a some sort of theocratic state that's run by Christians? No. I am for a constitutional republic. Craig, for me personally, I like the Constitution. I like the first 10 amendments. I like our form of government. It's a perfect – it's not a, a perfect um, government. It is imperfect by every every way that you can imagine, but – it, it's like I'm trying to remember who said it. 
Um, it's, uh, here's the way I put it. it, it was, Const- uh, Constitution- it's, it's, uh, the, it's the worst fault systems except for all the other alternatives. Uh, yes, yes, right. yes. Uh, yeah, if, if someone says, yeah, a constitutional republic is the worst form of government unless you you know, include every other form of government. In my view, Churchill? the Constitution— I think it might have been Winston Churchill, yes. Yeah, yeah. But so, so my view is, no, I am actually for a constitutional republic. Um, but I'm also for advocating for a form of government which is consistent with a Christian worldview. We might even say a Judeo-Christian worldview. In what sense? In in my sense, it means it's my understanding from a Jewish perspective. If I were to ask your rabbi, why did God allow government to exist in Genesis chapter nine? Why? What is the purpose of government? Do you think it does it sound outrageous if your rabbi said? The purpose of human government is to promote righteousness and restrict wickedness. I'm I'm being very simplistic, but if we ask and we answer the question, what is the purpose of government? Isn't it to somehow put a stop to chaos? Isn't Isn't it about an ordered way so that human beings can act and 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 interact with each other not in a wicked way but in a righteous way in a loving way can i make a confession to you and will you treat me with love and respect do you guys do confessions at your uh sanctuary not in like a roman catholic way but but the the bible in the new testament says confess your sins one to another not not with the idea that um, I have the ability to absolve you of sin, but rather that the the, uh, the way that I would think about it is I'm not, like, admit- I'm not looking to be absolved, but I confess right. that as a learned man, I've never made it through my own book. I mean, maybe I've made it through Genesis and I've read a lot of Exodus, but Leviticus and that sort of thing and Numbers, oh my God. And then there's something yeah, I- more— I can't get through it all, let alone to your book. That's why I need to find out what Lauren Boebert is talking about. She went to Tennessee. She told the church crowd, hey, honored to be here, and uh, don't be scared. We're in the end of days, and it's it's beautiful. And they all clapped. Are we in the end of days? I've heard of end times, something about revelations. Is that what you yeah. teach, and are we in them? And what does that well, mean for everybody? No, well, yeah, yeah, and as you can imagine, there's all kinds of different people who have all diff- different kinds of views on what people have called the apocalypse or the end times, or you know how it's all going to end. You know, how is the human condition gonna gonna come to a a, a dramatic and abrupt halt? For Jewish people, they actually really do. There, there's at least some Jewish people who believe in a Messiah that a Messiah is coming. That there is a a messianic figure who's going to come on the scene, who's going to resolve um, these tensions and and bring about righteousness. I'll believe it when I see Elijah flying across the sky on a chariot. Right, right. right. So yeah, the Mashiach. We came up with that concept. Right, right. You're exactly right. And so, from since you came up with that concept, the Christians believe. That Jesus is that Messiah, right? And that and that He's going to come back, and and so 
for the different Christians have different views, but some Christians believe that the end times began the moment that Jesus rose from the dead. And then fast forward to, to through the world in which we're living right at this very moment. That is this world going to dare we use the term resolve? Is it going is it going to come to some sort of meaningful conclusion? And what will that conclusion look like? And so the book of Revelation in the New Testament talks about that. But make no mistake about it. The Jewish Bible has a lot to say about that in the book of Daniel, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38. The prophet, the Jewish prophet Ezekiel in chapters 37 and 38 warns of a coalition that comes from what's now modern-day Russia, and it comes and it seeks to spoil this tiny little nation-state called Israel. Mm-hmm. Boy, and no, so— yeah. Can, and, can and I so, just back you up a little bit? Because there's nothing in my book that taught about Jesus rising from the dead. But I know that's a fundamental tenet of Christianity, and you believe it, right? Right. 100%? Yeah, 100. And you know what? See, this is the one thing, if if you were to ask me, what is the one thing that that if it proved to be untrue would cause you to return to your Jewish roots? It would be that, that very simple statement, Craig Silverman. I don't have a good explanation of what happened to the body of Jesus. Did he in fact rise from the dead? So you're you're exactly right. For for me, so how can this you be 100%? a hundred percent? Yeah, yeah. I am a hundred percent convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, but but in the end, you're exactly right. How do you know that for sure? Uh, what would happen if for some reason it could be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt? that the bones of this Jewish rabbi from the first century somehow is discovered in some sort of mass grave around what used to be the wall of Jerusalem. And we know for sure, we know for sure that this is the rabbi Jesus. This is the rabbi Jesus that's spoken of in the New Testament. He didn't rise from the dead. Then I would be the first to say, I'm no longer a Christian. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it would be superfluous and stupid for me to be a Christian. What if you were only? View. What if you're only ninety nine percent? Well, you know what? I I, I have enough humility to say, have I always had a hundred percent? And the answer is no. There there have been times where I like having this honest conversation with you. But what if it didn't happen? What what would I be willing to con? con- what would I be willing to accept as evidence that it never happened? Mm-hmm. And so the way that I would turn that question on its head to you, because I respect you so much, it would be what evidence would compel you beyond a reasonable doubt that he did in fact rise from the dead. But it, seems, it seems sort of like the Red Sea parting. It seems like, whoa. <laughs> that, that, well, we're back that to, to the Jewish make... rabbi. Huh? Right. Huh? No, we're that, back to the Jewish rabbi, where the so, Jewish rabbi says, how do you know the Red Sea parted? 
And and the rabbi says, because God said so. There there it is in the right. Torah. All right. Read it for yourself. Right. And so so I, you know, I, I'm the, not a hundred percent on that one. Well, but you see, this is my point. My point is is for many Jewish people, the miracles are um hard to believe to to, to say the least, okay? But for other Jewish people, no, it's not so hard to believe. And and so to me, the most unbelievable sentence in the Torah is the first sentence. For in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that single sentence is true, if that single sentence is true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth aren't God, that there is in fact a God, that polytheism can't possibly be true, that atheism can't possibly be true, that philosophical naturalism can't possibly be true. If the Jewish God of the Bible in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, then that means that a lot of things isn't true. And if this God could in fact create the heavens and the earth, parting a Red Sea doesn't seem all that um significant to me. Gosh, how many hours have you broadcast about the Bible? Probably hundreds of thousands, right? (laughs) I would say that I have, you know, again, you and I are the same age. Can you imagine you and I were in in kindergarten all the way through high school and college? If you take every moment of every day that I was in elementary school, junior high school, high school, and college, I have been on the radio longer than all of that time. Right. Right. <laughs> I did it for about 16 years. I'm still podcasting, but a guy who's had a great career doing this, and you know him a lot better than I do. I've listened to his book on the Old Testament, and uh, oh, I think it's, you? yeah, to Dennis Prager. Tell everybody yeah, what to, you know about Prager. Well, obviously, Dennis Prager is a, is a Salem broadcaster. He's a, an observant Jew. Um, he's written about um, the Torah. And he spent his life dealing with something that you and I share a deep, deep concern about, and that's Jew hatred. He shares our concern and has written prolifically and I think compellingly on the subject. And um, he's written a series called The Rational Bible. I just had him on my program a, a few weeks ago on his, his latest project that he did. And we had an interesting discussion about, again, the rat he calls it the rational bible because in in his his way of thinking he he thinks that it's reasonable it's logical and reasonable to believe what the torah says about the human condition and i don't dispute that i don't dispute that it's reasonable that uh, what the torah says about the human condition is in fact true He's a smart guy, and I've had the chance to talk to him a time or two, as I have with Hugh Hewitt. As you well recall, Hugh lived in Denver for a little while, and uh, I have a good friend from Warren, Ohio, who knew Hugh's family, and he's a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. How well did you get to know Hugh Hewitt? Uh, How did I get to know him? No, how well do you know Hugh? You know, I've had him on my program a couple of times. He's obviously been at the church, and we did the event together. We've spent a couple of hours together, and um, 
and I think it's been very, very productive. As you re- uh, you recall, you know, his undergraduate work was done at Harvard, and he went, if memory serves me correctly, to Michigan and um, to law school. Right. And, he was about our age, and he fell in with yeah, Dick Nixon. Yeah, he's yeah, Richard Nixon. Yeah, he. Yeah, we're all. Yeah, we're all uh, in from that same crop. And again, what I admire about him and you is, again, that that God in his grace and his mercy have have given you both the ability to think clearly and rationally about the important issues of justice and the human condition. But see, to me, again, the reason why justice is such an important concept is because the Bible— declares that God is a just God and that it's reasonable to have an expectation of just outcomes. Right. And certainly, as I study uh, Hebrew texts, uh, reference to the law is nonstop. So I come from a long line of lawyers Right. And, and one of the lawyers I met, and she used to fill in for me on the radio, and I bet you knew her pretty well, Jenna Ellis. Did you get to know Jenna? Well, not only do I know Jenna, her her mom and dad are very, very good friends. And the very first radio program Jenna Ellis ever did was on my program. And uh, obviously, before she became a rock star and and the you know a, a Fox News correspondent or you know Fox News contributor and and uh, and counsel to the president of the United States, um, yeah, I knew her and um, and had a, a a very close friendship with her over the years. And 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 as you can you know, you and I have our concerns about the former president and and about his character and about some of the egregious dare I even use the word outrageous things that he's done. Um, but we're, we're, we're back to what, what I talked about, about friends and about mistakes. You, you know, there does come a point, and, and I think that this is the, the real issue that, that we've have, have to struggle with, Craig, and that is what do we do when a friend makes a mistake that puts our friendship at risk? That, that where we literally say, I don't think I can be friends with that person anymore. And so that's why I, I try to be as gracious and long-suffering and patient and kind and look for reasons not to not to sever friendship, but to retain it. But I, I guess there are certain things that happen that we have to seriously reconsider. And, and again, you know, Jenna Ellis remains my friend. Well, that's great. And uh, I mean, just that concept, and I agree. If you have a friend, I've heard it said, it's not original to me, you should treat that friend like fine art and put Mm -hmm. it in the best possible light, right? Just like you. I consider you a friend, and I'm trying to put everything you're saying in the best possible light as I get to just some things that are on my brain because mm-hmm. it's so good to talk to you and thanks for your time. Uh, one more person who I bet you might know, and I did not know you were that close with Jenna, uh, but that's really fascinating to me. Um, mm-hmm. Dinesh D'Souza. He, he does I a do, lot with Salem. Do you know him at all well? I, I've, I've had him on the program a couple of times, but I can't say that I know him. I've read his books 
and benefited from them. I am um, impressed with his story, you know, coming from India. Um, you know, he's an immigrant like me, you know, I mean, in the sense that his family came here and and he uh, looked around at this great big thing called the United States of America. And um, he is conservative. But yeah, I am. Uh, and I, a Christian. I, I mean, he looked and, and around and decided I'm going to be a Christian. In fact, I think right. Dan Kaplis modified a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Dinesh D'Souza up at the Mackey Auditorium in Boulder about the existence of God. So Dinesh D'Souza has written a book on that subject, yeah. Right. So it's just, I I have to tell you uh, that you know what's on my mind is anti-Semitism. You referenced it. What did you think about Kanye West and what he's been doing and saying? What's going on there? Well, again, you know, I don't know everything about what's going through his mind, but but again, the slander of accusing the Jews of being in, in control of everything, I found to be difficult, not just difficult, but reprehensible. And and so I don't know what's going on with him other than that there's some kind of perverse, evil inclination or or he is hearing and believing lies and libels that um that that literally have in my view it, it's hard for me to take him seriously as a thoughtful person who's thought about this subject he's got 38 I, million instagram followers that's about four times as many people as there are Jews in the world. It's frightening. And right, right. He, uh, it doesn't help that his wife left him and went with Pete Davidson, who has a Jewish last name because his father was born a Jew, but he went to parochial school, sort of like you, Gino, but his mom was Catholic. But I bet Ye is thinking that damn Jew is with my wife. All right, Pete Davidson. So that's part of it. But... Uh, I sent you my Colorado Sun column saying who's right. going to stand up, and, and I ripped Kanye, but I also ripped Donald Trump for when he posted that truth social saying American Jews should be more appreciative, should be more like evangelicals before it's right. too late. And and I noticed you didn't bring him up in your show about anti-Semitism. And yeah, yeah. He's on and my I- brain a lot. Right. And and again, even that statement, well, what does he mean by you should appreciate what? You appreciate you? So so if the if the claim is, well, evangelicals appreciate me, why don't Jews appreciate me? Now again, this rises to the level of a slander of like Joe Biden. Hey, you're not black if you don't vote for me. What kind of a wicked, stupid person would make such an outrageous statement? And so, I'm again, I'm trying to give the former president the benefit of the doubt. What in the world did he mean by that? That Jews are cattle and they all should have the same thought patterns about every single social or political or ideological position? We know that that's not indicative of reality. And so we're, we're left with what you and I have both 
been troubled by, and that's this president's narcissism and evaluating all of reality in light of who he is instead of what he thinks or the positions that he holds and his ability to defend them. And so that's what I've so admired about you. It doesn't just come to uh, this this sort of generic name-calling. It's where, tell me what your position is. Defend your position and support it with evidence. All right, I will. And uh, I, I think you're right about the word narcissism, but the other word we talked about, fascism, is the one that concerns me. And yes, we've had election disputes in the past, but never have we had it coupled with violence. And January 6th rocked me. When you were talking about the destruction of the temple or even when Jesus uh, was put on the cross, right? It, it, It was one of those wild scenes. And now we can't even get straight what happened on January 6th to me. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. What about you? Well, again, I had a friend who was actually on the scene. He didn't go into um, the uh, in, into the Capitol at that at that moment. I I am not convinced that Donald Trump it, had whipped the crowd into a frenzy with the purpose of overthrowing the government. But again, I think that I do believe that – I don't know if you read the book about the madness of crowds and you know you, the whole thing about groupthink. And that, that for whatever Gino, reason – have you watched the January 6th committee? I watched some of it. Well, I it's, it's just it. – I mean I, I don't want to waste time, but Donald Trump organized every bit of it in my mind, and he wanted to take force by violence – he even wanted to kill Mike Pence. He wanted that to happen. And I wish you would watch the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson or read that report. But we don't even have to go back that far because I'm trying to think, what is a fascist? How? Well, what, what is it me, about? Yeah, go ahead. I, I okay, wanted to talk well, about Nazis. Yeah, go ahead. Right, and, right. and I, I want to ask, why, why was your friend there in Washington at that rally? Well, my friend was there because he happened to be working on a project with the Museum of the Bible it, because he provides the video support for them, and he just happened to be there. Right, but he, so many a- people were there because they believed this big lie, and I used that realizing it's a Holocaust term because right when I heard it, I knew it could lead to big problems, and I—, I, I I, I'm just right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the big lie, obviously, that that has, that people are talking about is the voter integrity, the voter yes. fraud. Yes. And, 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 and I, I, I think that there, there, there was a perfect storm, if you want to use that term, a perfect storm of, of what could go wrong does go wrong in a, in a, in a, uh, Nothing in a went COVID. wrong except Trump trying to create problems by cheating in a variety of ways. But we don't have to go there, Gino. And I, and I right, know right. we don't have unlimited time. And I just right, want to right. end on a point of agreement. Well, let's re- agree. Uh, let me tell you about what I think fascism is. Please. Fascism is a way of organizing a society or a culture in which the government is ruled by a dictator. A cult leader. Can we agree? Kind of a cult, cult leader who, who, type. Yeah, yes. who controls the lives of the people yes. in which people are not allowed to disagree with the government. 
Right. On on and, and the punishment is violence, and it's it's not right. the rule of law. It's 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 mobster rule. It's right. Putin it's a rule. political philosophy. It's a regime that exalts the nation and sometimes the race above the yes. individual, and then it stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, forced suppression or opposition. So it, so it, those are the elements of fascism. And you have to believe some common lies and be okay with it, right? Right, right. And so, so to me, obviously to me, the ultimate lie – the ultimate lie, Craig Silverman, is the lie that's offered in response to what the Jewish Bible says about the God of the Bible, that there is this God and that he made human beings in his image, that they're valuable and important, that they have a value and an importance that's so, that is so transcendent that to destroy them, to mar them, um, is a great wickedness. Each, so you, each you human, each human, each human, in the image of God, and in made you. in the image of God. And it, so, if you don't believe that, and I know that there are people who don't believe that, but if you don't believe that, then you you have to come up with an alternative explanation of why we're here. For some people, you're the product of unguided processes over millions of years that just happen to evolve into Craig Silverman. Now, and and by the way, that's exactly what happened, or it didn't happen that way. What if human beings, according to the Jewish Bible, happen to actually really be part of a specific creative moment by a transcendent God of inestimable value? And so that's where, again, when you treat human beings with such a total disregard uh, of, yes. of yes. their value. Yes, the total disregard of human life, existing human life. I, I don't want to get bogged down about pre-birth. But you have hit on it, and I but, love but it. I'm hoping that that becomes at least right. the, 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 the bridge, if you will, the yes. bridge that you can walk on and I can walk on and go, tell me what you think. Why are human beings valuable? Why are they valuable? Not just that they're valuable. And if a person says to me, I just choose to believe it. And I say, could there come a time when you choose not to believe it? Is this something that mm -hmm. is so flexible and malleable mm -hmm. that it can come into existence or cease to exist? This is both the beauty and, and to me, the civilizational contribution of the Jewish people. That the Jew, and I actually agree with Prager on this, that absent a Jewish revelation of the law, Western civilization as we understand it couldn't exist. I hope you read Dana Milbank. He wrote for the Washington Post recently that Jewish people are getting worried in America, looking at and their well, suitcases, should. all right? And to me— I like to boil things down to simple black and white. Maybe that's why I like to be a prosecutor, because there are some crimes that are heinous, and I like to be part of 
proving the truth of what happened and helping victims, right? right. And when I look at black and white in history, wow, when we were growing up, Vietnam, so confusing. So many things are, but World War II and right. the fight against Mussolini and Hitler, damn those bastards. That was the fight of all time for America. Do we agree on right. that? It was good versus evil, 100%. Right, 100%. 100%. All right, and, and, and when somebody is the victim of a violent crime, that person should be treated with love and dignity. Would you agree? No. I, 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 believe I, that I mean, you would agree, be, right? I believe that a, a person should be treated with love and dignity. And remember, when I'm using the term love, I don't mean sentiment or, or, or emotional sentiment. I mean, a willingness to do what's in their best interest. It's in the best interest of every human being to give them a just and fair trial. It's, it's in the, it's in the interest of every human being that the punishment should fit the crime. It is in, it's in the best interest of every human being and civilization itself that the the judicial process should run its course. Gino, Gino, you know about victims of violent crime. My God, Columbine, those poor grieving parents. Can you imagine anybody disparaging those victims? Wouldn't that be the personification of evil? And perversion and perversion. Just like what, what, what that Alex Jones did to Sandy Hook. Can you imagine? Isn't that just total black and white? That that's horrific. Right. So imagine, you know, you have the Alex Jones of the world who say it never happened. Right. And not only that, but you're a crisis actor. Right. It's a false flag. You're a crisis actor. Okay. Now, so I just want to bring it around to this and try to make a point that I want you to think about long and hard. Okay. Okay. Because an 82 year old man and named Paul Pelosi was sleeping in his bed when a madman broke through his uh, back window with a hammer, came up, woke him up, marched him around, and uh, he, he managed to get the phone on. It now turns out that the guy identified himself as David to uh, the dispatcher. The police came, but they couldn't stop the guy from hitting him in the head in what was a confessed assassination attempt against Speaker Pelosi. Now, I'm not going to blame any Republican for that happening necessarily. or the former right. I, 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 But yeah, what I'm going to yeah. say is this. What I'm going to say is this. That while this man was fighting for his life in intensive care with his skull fracture, on Twitter where I spend too much time, Dinesh D'Souza was putting it out there that Paul Pelosi had picked up a gay prostitute, was having gay sex, he was drunk, he was in his underwear, and then that got retweeted by Jenna Ellis and Donald Trump Jr., and then Donald Trump's been on uh, a podcast saying, oh, there's a lot of funny business in this house. And to me, it makes me crazy, Gino. That's that's so bad. And well, it should, because it's a libel, just like the just like the Kanye West libel. It's a, oh, the Jews uh, yes. are in control of everything. Yes. So imagine a person says, well, you know, and again, let's just give uh, Speaker, Speaker Pelosi's 
husband whatever benefit of the doubt and say, no, he's the he's the victim there of crime. Is, no, it's not a benefit of the doubt any more than it, giving uh, Lauren Townsend the benefit of the doubt. One of the poor right. victims in Columbine, she was a victim. It's no exactly. benefit of the doubt. Exactly. Why, why do you so, need to parse your words there? Well, so I don't need to parse my words. What what I need to be able to say is, for for the person on the left or the person on the right, who 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 charges the assailant, the assailant who accosted Speaker Pelosi's husband, that charges the assailant with, well, the reason why he he assaulted. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's husband is because he's a right-wing ideologue. Now forget about he, that. He is or, mentally or, or, or ill. I'm not, I'm not focused on that. I'm talking about the way that this victim, an 82-year-old man attacked in a home invasion, and, and was, the reason, was the victim of Dinesh D'Souza, Jenna Ellis, and the Trump family. And that's that. that's what Nazis do. They... That's what the terrorists did when they threw Leon Klinghoffer off the, uh, what was it, the Achille Lauro, because he was a Jewish guy. And now it's not just killing Jews, it's owning the libs. It's a Pelosi, we're going to own the libs. And honestly, to make light of an 82-year-old man getting hit in the head by a home invasion guy, it, it's just not the thing that you make things up about or try to get. I, and, and that's, that's I, you and I are sharing the same point. But it what do we do about an, the people? I can't be friends with Jen Ellis when she does stuff like that. Well, the, we're back to my original conversation where you, where you ask and answer the question, un, unlike like Shimon Perez, and, and you say, it's my friend. She's made a mistake. And now, again, you might say no, she's she, making she a has... living doing this shit. I'm sorry, but I'm getting so no, worked no, up. You know, no, no, no. Well, and I, I, she's I'm drifting to... along with the former president, who is going to get but... us all killed if we don't stop this crap. I'm telling you, the guy delights. He, he, his son tweeted out. A picture of a Halloween costume of underwear with a hammer next to it. And like it's funny that Paul Pelosi got hurt this way. I mean, it's not it, funny. No, and it's and, political and it violence. Funny. See, and this is part of my point. It's where 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 politics, Craig Silverman, has risen to the level of religious zealotry. In other words, where you're trying to promote both a, a political philosophy, whether it's conservatism or liberalism, and then now all of a sudden, common sense and dignity can no longer be incorporated into the conversation. And that's so I'm not trying to dismiss the, the wickedness, the stupidity of people doing wicked and stupid things. In my view, remember, I'm charged with trying to think the best and the highest. I, I am uh, not in a in a naive way, but I, I'm trying to begin with giving people the benef benefit of the doubt until the evidence seems to suggest that things are completely different. And so, again, part of the challenge but, 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 is the but, well, Isn't there a thing in Christianity about willful blindness or turning your head, looking away? 
Right. There is a willful blindness and, and a turning your head, but it's not unique to Christianity. No, I know there it's are, not. I know and, it's and, not. But but I and, thought and, there are some gospel teachings on, you know, not turning your there, head there, away. There, well, it, it, and again, there there is some gospel teaching. And the, and the gospel teaching, of course, is is that when you see wickedness or perversion or injustice and you ignore it, you turn a blind eye to it, you pretend like it's not real. That, that's, see, the, part of the, the challenge is who do you answer to for that kind of blatant disregard of humanity, civility, and justice. You know, we haven't talked for a long time, but everything you just said, I've been seeing. And I appreciate all the compliments throughout and right back at you. We're the same age. And uh, my antennae are on high alert as the son of uh, two Jewish people. Okay? Right. So um, I'm worried about my family, and it's... As you all know, when they come after the Jews, it's not just the Jews who get hurt, right? The whole civilization gets hurt. No, is that you're exactly right. Uh-huh. You know what I, what I heard? I heard that, that Ozzy Osbourne in Hollywood, he says, I'm leaving America. I'm going back to Britain because it's too out of control. Now, think about it. Ozzy mm-hmm. Osbourne, mm-hmm. the prince of darkness, says, it's so dark in America, I can't stand it anymore. Now I'm I'm leaving on this high note because I I just not not that I'm trying to be dismissive or or make fun of the condition or in any way any way suggest that that Jew hatred and let's let's call anti-Semitism for what it is mm-hmm. Jew hatred right and that that it has no place and, and and so we're back to the original thing that we talked about the existence of the nation state of Israel it, and we ask and we answer the question. What do we do in a world where Jews have no place to go, where they can be safe? And uh, 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 you probably have talked to some of your Jewish friends who said, I never in a million years thought I would make Aliyah because I thought that America would be an unsafe place for me and my family. Right. And now people are thinking about it. And it's so sad to me. And I'm looking for people like you and— Dennis Prager and Hugh Hewitt to stand up. I've really uh, lost any hope that uh, my former friend Dan Kaplis will stand up. He expressed his his love for Carrie Lake and and how great she is when she's all in on the big lie. And and people have let this go. And I'm just worried that it's going to have to be someday in America that. Uh, you will not well, only I, have I, to be a hundred percent on the right. risen Christ, but you're going to be a hundred percent on the fact that Trump won in 2020. You better say that now, don't you believe it? You believe it, don't you? I mean, come I, on, this is what he's telling his candidates they have to preach as opposed to policy issues. And to me, they go along like Kerry Lake and this guy, uh. Bad Masterson or whatever that guy's name who's going to defeat an astronaut, maybe Blake Masters in Arizona. It frightens the hell out of me because they seem to be worshiping Donald Trump, doing whatever he says, believe this, or I'm going to primary you. It's horrible. It's fascist. Right, and and I think that this is the sad, horrible situation that many Americans find themselves in. 
And that is when you're dealing with an ideological social justice leftist um, incompetence and then you're dealing with a Donald Trump and you, you, you have to, to make an impossible decision between two po- impossible ideologues, it becomes very, very difficult. One of the things that I would just encourage you as my friend, as my friend. And I know that you value friendship and that you don't easily give up on friendship. Right. It hurts that, me that, to that, give that, up that, on that, friendship. It hurts well, me to and, say and that's, that. That's that's why I you know I just want to encourage you about Dan Capitalist because you do have such a long and histor and a storied friendship. And and I would just I would encourage you that if j- just like you feel such strong passions about this, I would just encourage you. To, to get that passionate about your friendship with Dan Kaplis and say, you know what, I, there was a time when I loved you and cared about you and, mm-hmm. and considered you my friend. And I, I am not prepared to just abandon our friendship. I would fight for that friendship, my friend. I would fight for that friendship and say, you know what, I don't want to lose you as a friend. I want to have an honest conversation I want to believe that you might be making a mistake because guess what? I can retain friendship with a person who makes a mistake, but maybe I can't retain friendship with a person who holds a deeply held position that results in the hatred and the elimination and the annihilation of Jewish people. So yeah, you have to have a line in the sand, but I would just encourage you to not give up so easily on him. And not that that you have, but I'm just encouraging you because I know that you deep down care about him. Well, the issues become bigger than that, right? And when people, to me, lead other people in the wrong direction and they do it, like Jen Ellis, I'll just come out and say it. She likes the fame. She likes the fortune. She likes the hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. And I get all of that. But at what cost? You're going to back the big lie that's going to destroy democracy? And I don't think Joe Biden is that great. And I'm the guy who said he didn't lose his fastball because he never had one. But I don't think he's been given a fair chance. And he's an old man, too. And we need better better leadership. But I'm telling you that there's a guy named Trump. Confidence matters. No, but there's a guy named Trump who is a unique evil And I just want you, you seem like you're receptive to that. And you are on the front line, my friends. Be be there for us to fight against bigotry and (laughs) anti-Semitism, okay? Well, I will. And and again, like I said, I so value our friendship and I so respect you. I value you, Gino. Yeah. Same here, man. Thanks a lot for doing this show. Anything else? Well, the the one thing that I was thinking about was... um, it, it was a, a Democratic president, FDR, and he talked about, again, um, when he was faced with that civilizational threat from um, the allied or from, from, the, from, from the axis of evil. And it just so happened that my family lived in a country that was a part of that axis mm-hmm. of evil, and they left. They left. They knew that something was horribly mm-hmm. right. and terribly wrong. And so sometimes we do. We have to we, we we have to identify evil for what it is and walk away from it. Well that's interesting because you know I saw this coming at Salem and 
My wife and I discussed it, and it's sort of my attitude about Twitter, because I don't care for Elon Musk or his embrace of that bullshit conspiracy theory involving Paul Pelosi. That was unconscionable for him to uh, retweet uh, everybody in the direction of that, you know, horrible gay sex story. Come on. But I urge you, Gino, my buddy, to watch that Ken Burns special. I referenced it in my column. And, you know, uh, we're a little too young, but Lindbergh, Henry Ford, they libeled the Jews. They put out the Dearborn Independent, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Jews are drinking Gentile babies' blood. We should never go to war. And they named that movement the America First Movement. So come on, when Jen Ellis is part of America First this and America First that, there's a reference back to that Lindbergh time and Henry Ford, and that was a horrible thing for the Jews. I can't even believe that they resurrect those names. Think about that, Gino. Yeah, I, and again, this is where words matter. Words matter. Words are inflammatory. And those words were chosen deliberately. And that's that's what we're, again, we have to try to find, n- not to, to obfuscate, but to clarify. You know, as our friend Ken, Dennis Prager is so fond of saying, I, I, I prefer clarity over agreement. In other words, I'm not trying to to have right. a false agreement, but let's just be clear where we stand and why we stand there. Can I tell you when the Tree of Life synagogue massacre happened four years ago, about a week ago? Nobody talked about it on the radio, the anniversary. I was on the air live in the Salem uh-huh. studio when it happened. And then do you think during the following week anybody wanted to talk to me about it? No, it wasn't a big deal. It really wasn't. And I'll tell you that when the... uh Ukrainian shakedown came about, the first impeachment. Nobody wanted to talk about that either. January 6th, people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to watch the hearing. I admire Lynn Cheney. I admire Adam Kinzinger. They are doing incredible work. But if nobody wants to watch it, and you as a thought leader, anyway, it's not too late. It's on C-SPAN, and I'm giving you a lot of things to watch, and here you are, a busy guy. (laughs) Gino, thanks for letting me talk my head off. I, I just no, can no, talk I, to you all the time, and I, I know you're a deep thinker. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you, and again, I hope and pray that God in his grace and his mercy will give us clarity of thought and charity um, about motives, that, that we that we really do take a deep breath and go, Look, I want to believe what's best and highest. Help me think this through. I don't want to misrepresent your position, and I don't want you to misrepresent mine. Well said, Gino. Thanks so much, and uh, let's stay in touch, okay? I would love that. You call me. Well, you and know, I, I, if I, you, uh, you did my show, I would do your show, and I would blow your audience away. Now, wouldn't I? I and, they, and I would love that. I would love that. Uh, yeah, so, you better check you, with management. You know, I don't want to get you. How many oh, years you don't want to you get me fired? No, uh, you don't want to get me fired after 20 plus years? <laughs> you know what? I don't know hey, about you, Salem. You know, I sent you that New York Times article about them. They are uh, 
the wind behind Trump sails, and it bothers me. It does. And you can tell Dennis Prager when you talk to him, but he knows. They all weighed in. Uh, it was in all the newspapers when I got let go, but I got a friend in Gino, and uh, <laughs> I know, honestly, when I have a Christian client who needs help, I know a guy I can call because you're there for people. All right, man? Well, you take good care. All right. Thanks, Gino. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Craig. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey there, Troubadour. Hi there, Craig. How are you, Dave Gunders? Does it occur to you that even though it's episode 121, that some people might be listening for the very first time? Well, welcome to those. Welcome to the show. Every week, we feature a conversation with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, an accomplished musician who's so busy that it's hard to get him in the studio. Where are you and the Vipers playing tonight? So the Vipers... Uh, uh, there's a Friday night. People won't know, but give, give people an example of your gig schedule. Well, let's see. So tonight we're playing in Lions at a place called Oscar Blues. They're, they also make the beer, Oscar Blues, and um, really good beer, by the way. And um, so that's Friday. And then I don't think we play again until um, maybe after the new year. At this point. Yeah, because you did so many Halloween gigs. How was that for you? The, the Halloween was a bunch of fun. We played that with the Twisters, with my buddy T and the Twisters. Everybody dressed up. It was a yard party up in Boulder, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Here we are recording on Friday. Are you oblivious to what happened on 6th Avenue this morning? Yes. 
hundred car pile up right there at Calamanth. Oh no. I mean that's such a disastrous design. There was apparently some black ice and a hundred cars all smushed together. Wow. That's awful. Usually, you know, I've heard of that in the past, like on I-70, sometimes that can happen. I didn't even, I haven't even been out today, so I didn't know that the roads were, were, were icy. Well, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Wow. And that's why you live east of downtown. You commute to the west. You come home to the east because the sun is not in your eyes either way. Have you ever thought about that for people working downtown? If you live in the foothills and you have to come every morning downtown and then the sun is in your eyes. Change that or not. <laughs> well, I don't know if the sun's going to change. I think right. maybe your, your house would have to. You've got the typical elements in this beautiful song of yours this week. Looking down, you eventually get around to talking about the sun and some celestial concepts. But this is an unusual Dave Gunder song. It's wonderful, but it's kind of looking down. You're not that optimistic. It's not a love song, right? Right. Well, it 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 is. It, you know, there he's he's going to get somebody, but it's 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 kind of a. Um, I I see this song as a, um, a kind of a reckoning of 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 where a person is at a given time in their lives. Right. Yeah. And right at that moment, it was looking down. Have you seen the polls? It looks like. Herschel Walker could be elected to the U.S. Senate down in Georgia. Talk about looking down. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's a surprise, Craig. Even even today, that's a bit of a surprise. And it's not just his lack of education or intellect. It's his willingness to go along with the big lie, election denialism, and looking down toward Arizona. We see the same thing. It's just, but you know what's beneath those two? What you got? Looking south further? Mexico. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if they're doing better in Mexico. I think about the Alamo. When bigotry broke out and U.S. wanted slavery and Mexico didn't, they fought about it. That's what the Alamo was about. I did that show. I'm just thinking these thoughts, but let's go even further down. Like the devil went down to Georgia. You remember that song, right? Of so, course, of course, yeah. yeah and the, that's the, the ultimate fiddler. downer is yeah. hell. Yeah. And I have interviews this show with Gino Geraci, a committed Christian, and you know what he told me his percentage of belief is that Jesus rose uh, from the grave? Well, I think if someone's a, a faithful Christian, it would be 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And the other thing they believe 100% is in heaven, right? And uh, if you believe that way, you're going up. And if you don't, it's looking down, right? You're going down. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the Vipers do a song called In Heaven There Is No Beer. Have you heard that one? No. Oh, it's a, it's a really funny song. Give me song. a few lyrics. In Heaven There Is No Beer, that's why we drink it here. <laughs> And he goes on, in heaven there is no drug, in heaven there is no sex, so let's do that next, is what he says. Hey, that's cool. Because <laughs> if you think about that, and some people are 100% on this, which is why they try to save our souls, us being Jewish guys, or anybody who hasn't accepted Christ as their Savior, which is the ticket to eternal life in this place called heaven, which may have beer, maybe not, maybe they have golf, I don't know. But hell sounds bad, and that's the only other alternative. So it occurs to me that 
some of the anti-Semitism through the, throughout history, especially Christian anti-Semitism, or Islamic, where they have a concept of eternal life too with paradise, is, you know what, these Jews, they're not, they don't have eternal life. They're just here for a minute. So their life just ain't that valuable. If you think about it, and I've been thinking about it because my other guest is Ari Fullman, who just did the movie Where Is Anne Frank? And she was a Jewish girl who's no more because beautiful writer that she is, uh, was. Um, she's gone. And uh, according to some theologies, that's all there. No, maybe she's in hell now. That's worse that she's in hell because she never accepted Jesus. I mean, it just leads to um, a devaluing of others. And I don't know. Uh, we talked about elitism of Jews, like we won't accept Christianity. Who do we think we are? Or it, it, I'm thinking about these things, Troubadour. Are you? Oh well, yes. I mean, you know, and I think I think in in the Jewish religion, you know, God, you, you, you're not even supposed to say the name. It's in of, oftentimes it's spelled G dash D. That's the, what I the, do. The idea, right? And I do, and my daughters do too. the uh, The idea being that God is so so um, formidable and and so all all powerful that that you don't even want to put. Uh, an emblem to to represent it, and there's also this idea of not having any kind of um, uh, 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 symbol, you know. Um, for, right, for, it's vague, sort yeah. of like the next world, the world to come. It's vague, and we don't bank on it. We don't know. And but anyway, what I was getting at yes. is 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 that. Um, and and so in Judaism, the idea of God being split, right? That Jesus being the Son of God, it's it's something that just doesn't doesn't work for the for the founding kind of uh, monotheistic belief of Judaism. Um, you know, and I, I respect all religions and everything. In terms of heaven and hell, the way um, oftentimes it's presented, it seems kind of like a a, a B grade movie to me. You know, not a lot of imagination and kind of fear based. You know, the idea of hell and burning for. Uh, Eternity. I'll say, I'll go on record saying, I think I will say there's a hundred percent probability that hell is not like that at all, if there e even is a hell. So, right. But how about the hundred percenters who see it otherwise? Well, and, we and, have a difference of opinion. And so when they say go to hell, literally, you can be murdered because they want you to go to hell. That's what the Ukrainians shouted at the Russians on that island, or even worse. And and I, and I worry about. You know, violence, political violence against Paul Pelosi. It's the worst thing I've ever seen, that you would disparage an 82-year-old victim of a home invasion, violent crime. Who does that? Makes up stories about, did some gay love affair gone wrong? How sick is that? It's, it's sick, and it's just, it's just uh, perpetuating their own, their own purpose is, is what that is. It shows you what the conflict is. It's not just against the Jews. They want to own all the libs, right? Pelosi is fair game. Anyway, I think about this having gone to extreme. For example, in Spain, you know, we always talk about the Holocaust, but what about the Inquisition? Hell, your father survived the Holocaust, and I'm going to go back and listen to how he described what happened to him as a boy in Germany. But if you go back to the Inquisition, have you ever thought about that? What would you do? 
Well, in the Inquisition, you had a choice to either convert or or, or you'd be burned. Right. You so know. what would you do? Personally? Yes. I'd run, <laughs> if possible. And then a big I wouldn't want to make either one of those here, decisions. Take the pledge. I think a lot of people took the pledge, and you can't really fault them. No, to survive, you can't fault them. Right. So I think that's what the big lie is becoming in the Republican Party, that you've got to be down with that or you're going to be excommunicated. you got to be like Kerry Lake. Trump told Blake Masters, hey, you got to be like Kerry. When they ask you, how's your family? You say the 2020 election was rigged. And the bottom line is Trump's going to announce right after the midterms, Merrick Garland has dawdled. Did you hear now they're floating a balloon that maybe they need a special prosecutor to avoid the appearance of impropriety? Well, what the hell? What the hell, man? It's so late in the game. This dawdling has been terrible for the country. And, and yeah, I hate to see what, what might be coming in terms, in terms of that. Um, but, um, and I'm, I'm just reading this article on climate change to, just to mm-hmm. briefly change the subject. When you know These are really, really serious problems we're facing, not just for ourselves, but for future, our kids, our grandchildren, the animals on the planet. I mean, there, it, there's a real thing happening. And, and unfortunately, just the, uh, the pettiness of our, of our political um, you know, struggles is in many ways, um, it's shackling us from doing what we need to do. Although we are making some progress with energy, with, with, and that's, that's positive, you know, with, uh, with clean, sources of energy but but uh still that's a real problem if if only we could focus on that as as a species your song is so fabulous it addresses the concept that you just discussed we're running out of time what's the line you have in there we've got a little time but uh we gotta look at the runway out of town and then you get to you're looking in all directions and you're looking up to space maybe we have to go up Staying on the ground's not working, and then that makes me think of Elon Musk. And you're not on Twitter, but I am. And as we've discussed in our dog walks, I am so conflicted. He fired so many people right now, today. Um, To me, he's in bed. I fear with Putin. He, He and that guy talk, and if you think about Musk, he made a bad deal. He overpaid. The stock market crashed, and... He brought a lawsuit to try to get out of it. But think about all the people behind the scenes that say, no, if you do this, we'll help you with money. Don't worry about the $44 because it's chump change to the Saudis, to the Russians. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, even if they destroy it, because it's such a, a remarkable, fast-paced, get the news now, don't totalitarians have to destroy that? I mean, the, the platform of Twitter. Yes. Or, or yeah. Yes. I mean, as, or appropriate it. Or appropriate. Yeah. Uh, appropriate it. Yeah. Like Rumble or Gab or one of these sites that nobody wants to be on. I don't know what's going to happen, but if I had to guess, it's looking down. I'm going to name this episode Looking Down After Your Song. It's so good and it has a happy ending because you have the prescription. Get rid of our blindness, uh, turn it over to human kindness, right? Right. And then you bring up a heart of gold. And I think I know what you meant by that. You tell us. 
No, I don't know. It's the golden rule. Well, yeah. Yeah. If there's any answer, it's, it's, it's there. Yeah. It's the golden rule. Do unto others. That's a great one. It's a great song. I think there's a lot of messaging perfect for this show. Thanks, Troubadour Dave Gunders. And dare I say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig.
Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, I told you that was going to be a great show. How about that song by Dave Gunders, Looking Down? But there's a happy ending. Something good could happen, I hope. Thanks to my guest, Gino. We are still friends. We had a great discussion. Thanks for being on the show. Ari Fullman, good luck in your 11-city tour in America. Thanks to you, the listeners, for sticking through. And I look forward to talking to you again next Saturday. Have a great week. Tell a friend, five stars, you know the drill. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.